Good morning, everyone. You're very welcome to this morning's infrastructure um, committee meeting. Um, we have a quorum. Apologies um, for the delay. Um, I understand that a number of folk have been caught in um, some traffic as well, so they will be coming later. Um, today, we will be considering some subordinate legislation. We will be receiving a departmental briefing on the budget for June monitoring and a further briefing from the Department on commercial bus service permits and transport integration. Uh, obviously, we're old hands at this now, but can I just remind those members who are joining us remotely to um, raise the, their hand via the icon to register if they wish to ask questions at each agenda item and also to mute their mics um, as this may cause some interference during the evidence session. Um, also remind you, and I'm conscious that we are opening a little late, that we do need to vacate this room at noon. Um, so if you can bear that in mind as we go through both of our briefings. Uh, at this point, I have apologies from um, the Deputy Chair, David Hildage, um, from Dolores Kelly and from Keith Buchanan. But I understand that they will all be joining us at some stage during the meeting. I don't have any um, chair's business, so if we move on then to the draft minutes of the meeting of the 2nd of June, and you will find those at page 6. Are members content? Ms Anderson and Mr Muir? Mr Muir? Chair? Yes, thank you. Uh, just where I know where we're on draft minutes, but previously the item before was chairperson's business, and I'm also very conscious that this is probably your last committee meeting, and you will be departing us onto pastors new as minister. I'm just to congratulate you on that appointment and say that I've enjoyed working with you over the uh, the was it 17 months um, as chair of the committee. So I just wanted to pass that on. Okay, thank you very much, Miss um, Anderson. Uh, same here, Chair. Um, despite our political differences, I think you've been a very good Chair and you've treated us all fairly. So well done and good luck going forward. I very much appreciate that. Thank you very much. Um, moving on then to, can I, can I assume that we've agreed the draft can I Can I also just um, get a brief yeah. chance to thank you for um, your role as chairperson. Again, I, I always thought uh, I got called uh, appropriately and, and, and thank you for chairing the committee in a very fair and equitable way. Okay, well, no, I, I very much appreciate that. And I suppose I was going to say something just at the end. Um, sure, just right. to, to obviously thank the committee members as well, but um, we'll maybe reserve that maybe to the end of the meeting. But um, thank you for those comments at this juncture. Um, Chair, can I recommend as well, just to yes. share and concur with some of the comments. I mean, you've been very, very fair with, with everybody in the committee, and I just wish you good luck in, the, in your new post. Great, thank you. And I maybe on the back of that, maybe I hope then that you'll not give me too hard a time then when I take up my my new role. You'll bear that in mind um, for, for the future months. So, but thank you very much for those comments. Um, so, draft minutes. Are we agreed? Yes. Okay, thank you. Um, matters arising um, at page 15, and again, that's from the meeting of the 2nd of June. Um, any issues that members wish to raise at this point? Nope. Okay. Um, and at page 
18, we have outstanding committee requests um, for information and obviously the various attempts which have been made um, to follow up on those items um, as well. Um, perhaps it might be something that we may want to look at with regards to whether or not time has passed sufficiently now that maybe we don't need to have those maybe on our, on our list but, um, or if the, if the issues have been resolved. But uh, if, I can, if members are content that we leave that maybe to um, to Vincent and, and Alison maybe to, to look at as well if members are content to do that. Okay, um, moving then to correspondence, item five, just uh, again just draw your attention to the correspondence memo at page 26 um, and obviously the advisory note was suggested action for members to take um, on those. Uh, I just draw your attention to um, the correspondence from the PAC, just which is the report on driver and vehicle agency, and you will under, you will know that this was an issue in relation to the um, the lifts. The DVAR briefing the committee next week on the resumption of MOTs and, and driving tests, and I suppose I would propose that that they come and provide a second briefing um, on their response to the findings and recommendations on the report, if members are content to do that. Um, Mr Boylan? Yes, yes, Chair, I could concur with that. I was just checking to see exactly, because clearly, um, well, obviously, some of us on this committee is on the PSC and we've seen some very dominant reports. So, I mean, at, at the earliest possible, if, if they can respond next week, that'll be... That would be appropriate if we can. I mean, we need to find out exactly uh, how they're going to react in terms of recommendations of that report. Thank you, Chair. Um, I was content with that. At page. Chair, um, uh, Yes, Mr. Beggs. Uh, uh, my hand. Um, they, I think we do need to be careful here because the department has a stipulated time period to formally respond to those recommendations uh, in a, through the memorandum of understanding that exists with the, the Public Accounts Committee. So we need to make sure we don't uh, um, uh, get into that process. It's, uh, certainly there's no harm if, if we get uh, an update, but uh, I, I just think we, we do need to check what the correct protocol is, given that the PAC has primacy of, on this. Um, if well, the members are content, then if we can leave that with Vincent and Alison to check that, and if it's appropriate, um, to then Thank schedule you. a meeting if they, we can. They're content to come and update on the issues outstanding with the lifts. Okay, I understand that the department are content to to do that, um, but there'll be some things. In, they can't if say. if there are things that they can't say, then we can we can obviously scope that out as well um, in advance of the meeting. Um, and a note then can be provided to members um, so that they know what they can and, and perhaps the areas that they can't ask questions on or they won't be they won't receive a response if you're content with that. Okay. I am mindful of what you've said, Mr Mr. Beggs, in relation to it. Um, uh, page seventy eight, we've a request from Newry Business Improvement District to brief the committee on the controlled parking zones that only apply in um, Lisburn, Uri and, and Belfast and I know that this is something which Ms Cummins has raised on, on a number of occasions. Um, yeah, yeah I mean, uh, I'm obviously happy to support this. I think it would be good to have them in um, as soon as we can. Obviously it's a, a very pertinent issue and it, it's, it's something that we we'll hope to be able to get addressed fairly quickly so I certainly support that. 
members, any other issues that they'd like to raise from the correspondence? Any, anyone else anything? Mr. Beggs. Mr. Beggs. Sorry. Have you anything further that you wish to um, comment on? Okay, we have um, a response from the, the Minister at page 79 and a number of issues which were raised um, coming out of the meeting of the 19th of May, um, in particular around A1 safety information engagement with SEUPB. Um, it's a, a fairly um, light response, but um, if members don't have any issues in respect of that, um, happy to note. Okay, so generally then members are content with the suggestions as to how we deal with um, the correspondence. Um, moving then to item six, which is subordinate legislation, um, SL1s which are not subject to assembly procedure. At page 86, we have SL1, the loading bays on roads amendment number two order, um, 2021. At page 88, we have SL1, the parking places disabled persons vehicles amendment number five order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 91, SL1, the parking places disabled persons vehicles amendment number six order, 2021. At page 94, SL1, the Waiting Restrictions Draper's Town Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 96, SL1, the One Way Traffic Belfast Amendment, Number 2 Order, Northern Ireland 2021. And at page 98, SL1, the Waiting Restrictions Newton Hamilton Order, Northern Ireland 2021. Are members content with the proposals for the statutory rule? All content? Thank you. Moving then to item 7, subordinate legislation, SR, is not subject to assembly procedures. Um, there are three, um, commencing at page 101. Um, we have SR 2021-142, the parking and waiting restrictions, Newton Abbey, Amendment Order, Northern Ireland 2021. At page 105, SR 2021-143, the private accesses on the Trunk Road, T4, that's the A1 junctions, Phase 2, up Brickland to Hillsborough, stopping up order Northern Ireland 2021. And at page 120, we have SR 2021-144, the waiting restrictions, Macarah order Northern Ireland 2021. Do members have any issues which they wish to raise on any of those SRs? Are members content with statutory rules? Don't yep. see anyone saying otherwise. Okay, so thank you very much for that. Agreed. Moving then to item eight, um, we're having our departmental briefing on the budget June monitoring. Ansard will record the meeting. Tabled at page three, we have the departmental briefing paper, and at page eight, um, with 2021, 2020, 2021 outturn and forecast outturn. Um, so those um, two papers are in your table of papers. Um, we will welcome in person 
which is lovely to see. Uh, we have um, Susan Anderson, Finance Director, and Declan Gloom, the Deputy Secretary of Resources, Governance and EU Group. Um, you're both very welcome, um, and particularly Declan. Actually, both of you, maybe, is it your first time actually physically in the committee with us too? So, um, and congratulations on your new role. Thank you. Thank you. Um, if you'd like to make an opening statement, and members will then follow up with some questions. Okay. Well, thank you, Chair, for the introduction. I joined the de Department as Deputy Secretary of Resources, Governance and EU Group a few weeks ago, and I'm looking forward to engaging with the committee and very much welcome the opportunity to brief members today on the Department's June monitoring round for 21-22. I'm joined today by Susan Anderson, our Finance Director, and by our Director of Network Services, Connor Lockery, who you'll see on your screens. What about Connor? Apologies. Connor, you're very welcome to the meeting. The June monitoring round has involved an extensive scrutiny of our financial position and forecast for this financial year, which is likely to be another year of uncertainty given the current situation as we move forward with economic recovery. If members are content, I plan on my opening remarks to firstly outline the resource position, then move on to the Department's COVID pressures, and finally set out the capital position. In terms of resource, the ministers had to make some very difficult decisions in allocating opening baselines. Excluding NI Water, the Department has a flat cash resource budget of $429.9 which does not cover inflationary pressures and is effectively a real terms cut. Indeed, it is important to say at this point that apart from Northern Ireland water allocations, none of the Department's resource bids above the 2021 opening baseline, including COVID pressures, were met. These bids are essential to ensure the delivery of many basic public services, including the provision of public transport, roads maintenance, winter gritting, planning services and active travel initiatives. The Minister has therefore been hugely proactive in reducing administrative budgets to try to address inescapable pressures to maintain frontline service delivery, and the Committee has been provided with the opening budget breakdown. Resource bids submitted in this modern round represent the inescapable pressures faced by the Department and TransLink. Bids totaling £36.7 million have been submitted for resource pressures. TransLink pressures totaling £27 million, which are largely due to inflation and new costs, despite maintaining cost efficiencies of £10 million. In addition, to minimise the impact of the resource budget outcome on roads maintenance, the TransLink baseline has had to be reduced by £5 million. Pressures for roads maintenance and winter service of £3 million and £4 million respectively have also been submitted. These bids are to maintain roads maintenance at a level similar to last year and to ensure that an average winter service can be delivered. As I have mentioned, funding was secured for NI Water in the opening budget. However, a further £1.7 million is required to meet the regulator's final determination, which has recently been published. This has also been submitted as a pressure. Finally, on resource, other departmental pressures totaling £1 million have been put forward. This includes staffing pressures and increased IT costs. The Department continues to operate with a significant number of vacancies, and further investment in staffing is required if we are to maintain our ambitious capital programme and ensure that statute duties are met. So, as you will appreciate, the overall resource outcome is extremely challenging, and very difficult decisions will, will be required if further funding is not secured in year. It will also have very significant implications for Northern Ireland's economic recovery, driven through the programme for government. Turning now to COVID pressures, Northern Ireland Water had its pressure met in the opening allocation. A further 20 million was allocated to the department in May, 
and outstanding pressures of 42.8 million have been resubmitted in the monitoring round. TransLink's financial position continues to be a concern despite the welcome additional 50 million that was received at the end of last financial year. TransLink's financial position will be kept under close review by the department as we move through the year. Moving on to capital, 722.5 million has been allocated for capital investment in the current year, which is the largest budget that the department has ever received by some margin. Although this increase in capital will allow for investment, which will be vital if we are to deliver essential economic recovery from the pandemic, it will be extremely challenging to deliver a capital program of this scale within a constrained resource budget. Finally, in this monitoring round, capital bids include two bids for flagship funding. That's 0.2 million to cover a slight increase in the cost profile of the F5, and a bid of 4.9 million to address increased costs on the S6. I hope that this briefing has outlined the challenges that the Minister faces and the difficult financial position that the Department is in. In closing, it is important to reiterate that the Minister is very keen to get the Committee's views and support in shaping and delivering improvements to people's lives and welcomes your constructive challenge and input. Susan, Connor, and I are, and I are very happy to take any questions. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. And, and you'll appreciate that um, the Committee has um, been a, a source of support, I suppose, in many respects, um, for the Department in um, sort of challenging the financial situation and, um, and lobbying um, for additional resource um, where necessary. And I suppose we are, um, as you have said, concerned in relation to the lack of resource vis-à-vis uh, -vis capital and um, the implications that that will have and will cause as, as we move forward throughout this financial year. Um, at this stage, really, all we are still hearing is that this will have an impact on um, basic services, and now you're saying, obviously, the implications for Northern Ireland recovery, and it's been very much sort of a, a headline as opposed to actually knowing what that really means. Are you in a position to give us any more detail about, you know, how we will see that visibly? You know, how will the, the man on the street see that? Because, obviously, we're... We're concerned about road maintenance, and um, Connor has been with us a number of times in relation to that. But, sort of broadly speaking, what does it look like if you do not get the resource allocation that the department needs? Well, I think, I mean, if, if I take a step back from it, I mean, there's very little in, in the 24 hours of a person's life in Northern Ireland that doesn't involve the services of, of the Department for Infrastructure. And, and when you look at, for instance, <coughs> the position with, with TransLink, or you, or you look at um, the impact that this could have, for instance, on maintenance of our roads, or even um, ambitious uh, things that we have in mind for, you know, the climate um, to address the climate emergency, etc. You could see the impact there of not having the budget there to deliver those important services to people to help improve their lives, and and a lot of what we do contributes to the wider economic growth in Northern Ireland. I mean, you've heard the expression "no drains, no cranes." I mean, the, the fact that we need to improve our water infrastructure is vital. The fact that we need a good transport service in Northern Ireland is, is vital. You'll have heard about the road conditions in Northern Ireland. Some of them need to be improved, and it's vital that we have the, the money there to do that. So those are the types of issues that we're going to face as, as, a, as, a, as a region in the absence of sufficient funding going forward. Essentially, what we have done and, and what Minister has been keen to do is the, the, the commitments that we have statutory obligation to deliver, we've, we've made the money available for those. Some of the more exciting things that we want to do by way of active travel, etc. We need to develop budgets for those in the years ahead, and we have some ambitious plans with water and um, sewage systems, etc. Going forward, so it's about looking at what we can do right now, but looking at some some of the 
um, problems that we have in, in so far as growing um, the, uh, the services that we can deliver across Northern Ireland, and, and I think that's the real challenge for us going forward. Okay, I mean, you have said that TransLink is obviously an ongoing concern, and we're we're aware of the the implications of COVID on TransLink. However, the 27 million that you've identified here for um, a resource bid um, is over and above the issues associated with COVID. Could you give us um, more information in relation to that um, and, and how you think that um, TransLink's fortunes can perhaps change? Susan will, will, will keep me right on the figures here, but um, what the, the, the 27 million over and above the, the, the 50 million that was originally requested for, from COVID um, is, is the gap between what they think, TransLink think that they can generate by way of FERS, which is in around 180 million, and then 257, point, 257 yeah, um, million where they think is going to be the cost for them in this financial year. So there's a gap there that, that needs to be filled. I mean, I, I have my introductory meeting with the, the Chief Executive of TransLink next week, and we're going to be talking about just how we move forward together and how we take account of, of pressures that will likely emerge during the year. So. I guess that, that's, that's how, how we're viewing at the moment. I don't know if there's anything yeah. extra Yeah, just supposed to get more detail in terms of the actual pressure. A large part of that will be inflationary pressures, so the cost of fuel, etc., that will increase from one year to another, as well as staffing costs. There are also some new costs as well um, in this year for TransLink, um, such as infrastructure safety maintenance work, cyber securities and other costs, insurance, and a new ticketing project as well. Um, as well as training backlogs too. So there's new costs coming on combined then um, with the inflationary pressures just to deliver the same service as last year, um, facing TransLink this year. Okay, and just a, one, brief, one more brief question before I pass on to all members have indicated. Um, you have put in a bid for um, 4.9 million for the A6, reflecting an increase in the estimated cost of compensation. Could you perhaps explain what that is and why that's required? I'm going to pass to Connor. Would you be able to answer that question, Connor? I think you're on mute. Sorry, Connor, we can't hear you. No, I, I don't. Enough. What we'll do is I'll maybe move on to other members, and if Connor gets to the stage where he can speak, to us, I'll, I'll call him in. Um, Mr. Buchanan. Yeah, thank you, um, Chair. And just to follow on on the Chair, and maybe if one of our Connor gets a, I can see that look of horror in his eyes there when hearing, <laughs> it doesn't work. The 4.9 million. Just to follow on that, but good to know, Connor, if you can hear us, or, or a Declan or Susan, what that's like in comparison. What percentage of an increase is in that in, in compensation? You know, what was the total compensation? So the 4.9 is whatever percentage more. I suppose just to follow on from Michelle's question, uh, you know, what brought about that 4.9 million increase? It's a lot of money, you know, and obviously it would be good to know what that's like in percentage terms. Uh, and then another point is probably it might be a counter answer on the, obviously the road maintenance stroke, the resource capital budget. Obviously we know there's a, a, a capital increase in money in roads, but obviously to the West is an issue, a legal issue, I understand, ongoing. And I have great concerns about that because I've seen nothing happen in the west of the province at all. And, and roads, yes, the small, small items, I think it's under the £15,000 uh, on the resource repairs, which is very small, in it, but, but, but no capital projects because there's obviously a, a 
some legal case going on. Have you any update on that? And I appreciate it. Is there a legal case? But have you any update on where that's sitting? Because we're now in the middle of the summer when all that work should be carried out and nothing's happening. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know if Connor can come in, but if not, I'm, I'm, I'll maybe. No. Um, I mean, as a department, as a minister, is, is carefully considering all of the legal advice. Connor and his team are, are looking at um, building in provisional plans in the event that they aren't able to spend in the areas they want to, so they're having a look at that, and they will be bringing forward some ideas and some options in the event that we do need to, to, to divert money to another part of the road side of things. So, so all the advice is currently still being considered, and we're, and we're just making decisions on next steps, but there's a lot of work going on with Connor's team um, to look at how, how we would put in um, alternative plans if needs be. And I, I'm not sure whether you can get contractors from the East to come across the West. I appreciate that's with the department, but nothing's happening in the West of the province, so I'm concerned about that because we've had a f one or two you know, fairly easy winters yeah. and hasn't an impact. But the minute you get a bad winter, you will see the benefits of not working in the summertime. And the last question for now, anyway, is um, the community transport. What way did you see that 750,000 under mm -hmm. a COVID pressure? What's that figure like in comparison with what they get in totality? You know, was it, you know, again, be good to know a sort of an increase. And how was that? How did you, you know, distribute that, that across all community transport, or based on what they did over, over COVID times? It's how that was spent. Yeah. So again, we're just working through the detail of that. So that's one we'll probably come back in writing just to give you the detail that's and break down. Just, just what they what they normally get, and then what that percentage is like, and how that 750 was sort of spread out, and under what basis. Okay. Because obviously, I know out and about, for example, in my local area, did a lot of you know food to elderly people, etc., etc. So that's all for my chair. Thank you. Okay, and hopefully Connor will be able to reach yeah. this and perhaps answer some of those questions. Uh, Mr. Boylan. Yeah, thanks, Chair, and uh, could I just welcome them all? And um, hope Connor is able to come back in. Just, just probably to to Susan, Chair. I mean, the, I know she mentioned the translink. Susan, in terms then of. Um, Translex reserves. Can you give us a wee update on, on, on their reserves, please? Okay, so last year we were successful in bidding for an extra 50 million um, to supplement Translink's reserves as part of historic underfunding um, over the previous years. Um, and then further in relation to COVID funding this financial year. Out of the 20 million that, they, that the department has received for all COVID pressures, TransLink then has received an allocation of 18 million. But whenever we offset that against then the total COVID pressures being reported by TransLink, um, and indeed the non-COVID pressures, the 27 million that, that we're talking about um, already this morning, um, it does leave us in a position where we need to consider um, the overall position on how we move forward throughout the year. I appreciate that, and, and uh, just question obviously with Declan, and Declan, good luck in your new post, and also Connor, because I mean, like Mr. Buchanan, uh, obviously we deal with the DRA representative deal with a lot of rural roads issues, and I'm just wondering what's been allocated this year, uh, what we're looking at in terms of allocations for the rural roads maintenance budget, because I mean, and I appreciate Declan what you've said about resource, but I mean clearly, COVID did play a big part in terms of some of the works. I know there was some good work done, but there was there was works there that that obviously would be outstanding. I was just never got that um, no fault of the department obviously because of the restrictions and everything else went with it. But just moving forward in terms of what we're spending now and what's our plans uh, for new roads maintenance. Uh, schemes or budgets, sir, could anybody respond to that, please? Yeah, Mr. Boyle, um, 
Susan's going to answer that question. We have a figure. Uh, yeah, I can give you sort of the high-level figures on this. So in terms of the total roads recovery fund, this year, Minister has set aside 17 million. And within that, then, 15 million has been set aside specifically to address rural roads. Claire, can I just test to see if I'm in here? Yes, we can hear you now, Connor. Yeah, good. Okay. It's amazing what restarting can do. <laughs> Um, there's, can, can I come in now, Chair, if that's okay? Yes, Just uh, There's a couple of questions. I was able to hear you okay. Yes, please. Um, the, the queries that were raised on the, the A6 is not something I'm directly involved with, but I certainly know the work of the contractor was impacted by, by COVID, and I have no doubt that some of the money relates to that. Uh, but maybe if we need more details, maybe something we could write back to committee separately on. Yeah, that would be helpful. To provide a bit more detail on that 4.9 um, 4 million. On the, the uh, a couple of members have raised issues around the contracts, and yes, it's, it's certainly something you know, we're aware of. You know, there are contract difficulties, and we're trying to work our way through that uh, and to, to understand the impacts. Um, it's certainly going to be difficult to, uh, to spend the increased budgets we have uh, this year, given these difficulties. But yeah, it's something we're, we're, we're having a look at, uh, and we'll maybe provide an update, update to the committee once we fully understand uh, the issues and what the picture is like going forward. Okay, I think it's probably in relation to that, it would be really helpful if we could get a time a timeline, because the year goes in very quickly, but there are also a number of contractors there. Um, who were anticipating this work, and um, that could cause serious difficulties for them and their workforce, as well as obviously the, the communities in which these works need to be carried out in. Yeah, I just, just got to respond to that as well. Yeah, that's certainly we're acutely aware of that. Um, just picking up on the, the £17 million for the Road Recovery Fund, which Susan referred to. Um, out of what's 15 of that is on uh, rural roads. I see the vast majority of that being delivered through you know, contracts that aren't part of the, 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 the legal challenge, so I would expect us to be uh, delivering that on the rural roads this year. Okay. Mr Buchanan, did you want to come yeah, back? If you don't mind, sure. just, just on that, Connor, you know the way the, uh, <clears throat> some of those contractors can do a smaller I guess it's a £15,000 figure and they can do a smaller contract. But do they not have a limit then? They can only do so many 15000 Is that then going to be uh, a restriction for this uh, rural roads recovery scheme? So in other words, is there contractors there that can deliver that specifically in the West? Yeah, well, yeah certainly a limiting factor is around, um, uh, around outputs. Yeah, but as I say, it's, it's part of the wider consideration we're given to the whole uh, issue of contracts and what we can deliver, not only in the West, but right across the province. So it's, uh, it's something that we will update the committee on once we fully understand the issues. Yeah, it'd be good just to get an update on, on where you're at with the larger contracts and if we can actually spend that in the West based on the smaller figures per smaller contracts. Thank you, Chair. Thanks. Okay. Mr. Boylan, apologies. Thanks, yeah. Carol. No, I appreciate Mr. McCann you can't jump in into the West, but there's a few other parts of the country might need done as well, Chair. But, oh, Connor, just on that, I mean, say, um, just to keep the committee updated, it, it's welcome that there's more money been allocated, but it's no good if we can't spend it, and you've indicated there that it can't it can be spent in most cases, and it's just it's just to keep the, the, the committee, obviously, and ourselves updated in relation to that. A couple of other points, obviously, Dak, I want to raise in terms of 
the electric charge points in ESB and, and what the department is going to do in in in, uh, in respect of that, and also the blue green fund. If you'd like to maybe um, respond to that, please. If if there's anything there, I think. Um. I wouldn't have detail on that. I can come back to you on that, Mr. Boylan. Um, I know we've set aside 20 million for the blue-green budget, um, um, with some ambitious ideas about how we can make best use of our, our blue-green um, land. But um, I haven't got the detail of that. But I will come back to you on that. The electric charge points issue as well, because I mean, I know the minister was keen to to move forward in terms of the electric vehicles issue. So if you give us a wee update on. Yeah. In relation to the department's BSB as well, okay? Okay, we'll follow that. Join us, mate. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Muir. Um, thank you very much, Chair, and welcome everyone to the committee meeting. Um, just a couple of things. First of all, uh, just following on from what um, Carol had mentioned around the investment in active travel and the Blue Green Fund. Um, I think from reading you there, it's £20 million for this financial year, just to confirm that that's going to be, is that the case? Yeah. Yes. yes. Okay. I'd just like to outline my extreme disappointment at that, um, because that you, the department has a 29% <coughs> increase in its capital budget, but essentially the investment and the Blue Green Fund is not all of it, but it's a substantial element in terms of active travel. Has actually been frozen. So, essentially, um, in comparative terms, there's been a cut in active travel. Now, if the department are real around their commitments in terms of active travel and sustainable transport, then the, the money needs to follow that. And to see that frozen at £20 million, to me, all the statements of all the strategies, all the documents mean nothing because the money's not being invested in that area. So, I just wanted to outline that from my own perspective because that's an extreme disappointment I have heard. That it was possible it was going to be 20 million pounds and it was going to be frozen but now that that's confirmed that sends out a really bad message uh, especially in light of the strategies that were announced last week so i recognize your officials and your detail on what the outcome has been in terms of the minister's decisions and i respect that but i wanted to outline my disappointment in relation to that because that comes on top of uh, a flat cash resource budget which makes delivery of a lot of these issues a lot more difficult um, just in terms of a, a couple of questions, I would declare at the outset that my stepfather is a quality manager for the A6, because I know that that's referenced within the report, and I'll not be asking any questions in relation to that. In relation to the resource budget and that being largely flat, uh, but the capital budget being increased, I think the last time we discussed this, one of the discussions was around the innovative ways to try to find ways to be able to progress the capital budgets in that context. So it would be, for example, capitalising stuff, which is previously considered as resource expenditure. I just want to see if there's been any developments in that field, So, because there's real concern that with that increase in the capital budget, the department will struggle to be able to spend it without the additional resource. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so just in relation to the capitalisation of costs, we do, whenever we're looking at schemes, um, go through um, quite forensically to see what we can actually capitalise. And we do look, um, we obviously have to um, comply with the accounting standards, so we do look to make sure that we're also complying with those, but also seeking to maximise what we can capitalise. And as I say, we do that on a scheme by scheme or project by project basis as well. So we are working internally on that. Nothing significant, I suppose, to report at this stage, um, but we are, we, we are looking at that carefully. 
Okay. It's just with that increased capital, but not an increased resource. Um, last year, we were I was outlined that no additional bids were made towards the end of the financial year in relation to roads resurfacing because there wasn't the resource to be able to turn around the, the work within the department to get that delivery on the ground. I just want to see, if, has anything changed? So I'm just really worried that we're going to approach the end of the financial year with significant issues here in terms of being able to, to get this capital spent and delivered. So really that's in terms of capacity to deliver. I'm wondering, yes. Connor, is there anything that you could maybe add in relation to that one? Yeah, just to say, it's, it's one of the, the factors we're aware of, and as I there are a whole range of, of issues at the minute around around delivery, uh, um, this, this, the resource internally, resource externally, they're all in the mix at the minute for consideration. Uh, and to say, we, once we uh, know the picture a bit better, we'll come back to committee on that. Yeah, I just think we're now into June, so we're... Um, over two months into the financial year and I think it's important we would get sight on what the strategy is to address this because if we had a situation where the department's been awarded an increased capital budget but is unable to turn that around and also unable to make bids as part of monitoring rounds because of that resource pressure then that would be a significant issue so just it would be important we get sight of what the department's doing to try to address that at an earliest opportunity if that's okay Connor. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah, and one other issue, just in relation to roads maintenance, a um, number of issues people come to me as an MLA, and one of the top issues um, alongside waiting lists is in relation to roads maintenance. Uh, to be honest, waiting lists goes way up to the top, but roads maintenance comes in um, really quite significantly in terms of people contacting me. Um, two questions. The Barton Review recommended that there be £143 million spent per year on structural maintenance. Just want to see is the, in terms of What's the forecast in terms of the department have been able to meet that? And also, has the budget been confirmed for each division in terms of the work that's going to be happening in their area? Because people are asking me when are these uh, works are going to occur? And you know, we're as I said, over two months into the financial year, and they want to know, you know, when are these roads going to be resurfaced? When are the pavements going to be fixed? Um, because they're really in desperate state of disrepair. Yeah, certainly if we, for the first question, if we park the, the issues around the difficulties we're having on contracts, then we're certainly moving in the right direction towards the parking figure. You know, the 120 million this year um, far exceeded anything we've had in recent years, so it's certainly going in the right direction towards the parking, 143 million. Um, obviously, we've mentioned the difficulties we're having this year um, across a range of issues on, on contracts. and. That uh, will obviously we need to understand that better, and, and that will feed into the allocations that go to divisions. So that's still very much a work in progress. Okay, so the allocation has not occurred to the divisions yet. There's provisional. We're currently in discussions with divisions about capacity to deliver, and we're also having cognizance of the the contract issues. Yeah, it's just. You know, we're well into the financial year, um, and if this was any business, it wouldn't be operating. If we're working on that basis, that budgets and plans haven't been confirmed well into the already into the financial year. So, when about is that likely to happen? 
we we'll certainly never know what we would like to be doing, um, but as I say, we need to get to the bottom of the, the restrictions arising from the, the contract difficulties, and um, it's obviously impacts in some areas more than others. Um, so we'll just as we continue to analyse the position and uh, to make decisions on the basis of that. I think it's yeah. important that there are plans in place uh, on road maintenance, etc., thirty year, but but they're indicative because we're taking account of of um, the recent developments. So it's just about making sure that that we're progressing. But I wouldn't want to give the committee the impression that nothing is happening yet. Um, work is ongoing, and there are. Um, plans being delivered on, but they're just being looked at in the context of, of the, the most recent legal um, issues. So, Yeah, and I appreciate that. Fundamental is, um, I need to be able to go back to constituents and tell them whether work's going to be occurring on the ground or not. You know, that's the reality I'm in. I've been able to tell them, you know, I, I've taken up cycling the last three months because I've been injured from running. And some of the roads, I've nearly even knocked off my bicycle because they're in an absolute state. And, there, and the cars are being damaged with seen in relation to compensation claims coming out of it. So we need to be able to give people a bit of hope and a bit of light in terms of when this is going to be turned around. So we just need to have timescales when we're going to have confirmed programme for works for these divisions. And if I'm being honest, I'd be leaving this committee meeting going, I don't know. Well, could I assure you, Mr. Moore, that, that there are plans in place um, to, to, for road maintenance throughout the region, um, but that there are also provisional plans being developed in light of most recent legal advice. So if you, if you, if you take away that, that there is work planned out, work probably already happening on the ground, um, but that these plans will have to be revisited in light of the legal advice. But that doesn't mean nothing will happen. That means work will just need to, plans will just need to be reshaped as we go into the later part of the year. Okay, just one last question. In the context, sorry, so the context. Yes, you're wrong. Yeah, go ahead. I, I, I just add to that that we, the divisions, will be going to councils with um, with their council reports over the next, uh, you know, June and July, and we will we'll have programs included within those. Obviously, in some areas where we, we're having the legal difficulties, you, you will have to consider how to present that and, and what caveats to put in there. Um, but certainly, in some areas, we, we, we should have three programs. Okay. In, yeah. in relation to those areas where there's legal difficulties in relation to the contracts, is there a possibility that there will be less works occurring in those areas and more works occurring in other areas as a result of that? Well, those are all the things that we're considering and looking at at the minute because there's all sorts of you know, restrictions around the contracts and you know ability or lack of ability to, to move contractors and to move works. So these are all things that we're currently considering at the minute and we'll see whether see what our conclusions are in due course. Okay, thank you very much Connor. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Kimmins. Thanks, Chairman, and thank you um, for, for the briefing this morning. Um, just, I suppose, a couple of things. And, and firstly, leading on from what Mr. Moore said around the active travel budget, and, and I know, you know, Shara's frustration about how it's only received 2% of the department's budget this year. Um, and I understand that it's partly tied up with, with pre commitments and the like, but, you know, it isn't good enough if we want to see. Um, walking and cycling become a bigger part of the way we get around. So I'm just wondering, can you comment on how much how much funding we can expect to go towards active travel this year? Um, yes. Yeah, so in addition to the 20 million then for for blue green um, on the resource side, there's an allocation of um, 660,000 
um, with a further half a million five hundred allocation this year. Now decisions on those are still being worked up, um, but that's the funding that has been set aside then for this year in resource, and that's in addition then to the twenty million in blue green. Um, thank you, um, And just in relation to the the bid for um, departmental pressures, and it's including funding for Waterways Ireland. Can you give me a wee bit more detail on that as well? Yes, I'll pick up on that one. So it's, it's a small amount actually that's set aside for Waterways Ireland. Um, it's just a couple of hundred thousand set aside. So it's really just in terms of resource pressures. Um, there's not again nothing significant to draw out there. It's just their routine um, okay. resource pressures. Yeah. Okay, no, no, that's grand. Um, I suppose, and, and again, coming on from Mr. Premier's points around roads maintenance, and I mean, my, my constituency in your yard, man, I'm sure my colleagues there would, would agree, um, it's probably the biggest issue that we're, we're all dealing with. Connor, did you just say there that there was 120 million this year for, for that? Can I just clarify that? Yes, the initial allocation. Um, for structural maintenance is uh, 120 million, of which 17 is roads recovery fund, and 15 of that goes towards rural roads. That's the initial allocation. And it's 20 million more than last year. All right. That's right. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. I suppose just to, to try and get a sense. Then I know obviously there are issues around contracts, um, but as I said, you know there's there's a huge um, list of of what needs to be done. Do you foresee that, that you know once the, the contract issue is resolved, um, that it would make a good a good dent, I suppose, in what is needed to be done, or, or how do you see that panning out? Yeah, well, it obviously depends on on where the 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 contract issues takes us to. If we didn't have those, certainly it would. Um, you know, it's a twenty percent increase in last year, um, of which is a hundred million outturn of that order. Some some the year before. So it certainly would be um, a bit more in structured maintenance uh, uh, and surface dressing than it would be typically in other years. Okay, that's great. I suppose we'll, we'll just probably keep it, keep an eye on that and see how things work out with, with the other issues that are, are sort of holding it back. And just my last question, at the previous meeting on the budget, you had mentioned that there was a fund requirement in relation to the reservoir safety maintenance, and that will have to be factored into where the budget, the minister prioritises their budget. Is there any further information on that at this stage? On, on the reservoirs, so within our staffing pressures, departmental pressures, within there we have staffing pressures which would include any additional staff required for the reservoirs work. And, and we've taken on responsibility from that, as you will know, from, um, from the 2nd of June, so we're currently looking at what that entails and scoping it out to make sure that we're well positioned to make sure we deliver on, on our responsibilities. So those okay. discussions actually are happening this afternoon, so we'll be taking that forward over the coming weeks. Okay, that's right. Thanks very much. That's all from me, Chair. Thank you. Thank you, um, Ms. Anderson. Uh, thank you, Chair, and thank you, Declan, Susan, and Connor, for your presentation and the information we received. I just want to make a few comments initially. Um, I was glad to hear the recognition, Declan, from yourself and others that you have received, the department has received the biggest capital budget ever. I am a little bit concerned about the comments, but there may be difficulties in spending some of it because in the other hand we're here, no, it's not enough. And of course there'll never be enough because there's always going to be pressures within the department as there will be with every department. And when we're dealing with Tory cuts, uh, that's going to add additional pressures, but a little bit concerned about that. 
I'm glad to hear that any water allocation, um, that that was uh, met in full for what was submitted at that time. Um, I'm also conscious of what you said that since then, that the regulator determination has come through. So there's a bit of pressure has emanated from that and that's been pursued. Uh, TransLink is something that we're all uh, focusing on, but the 50 million received um, at the end of last financial year, uh, that alleviated some of that pressure. And I just want to comment to someone from Derry and who's uh, acutely aware of the needs particularly around two roads, the A5 and the A6. And there are some people within uh, my constituency and others, uh, other areas of the North who need the A5 and A6 and needed it for decades and uh, are getting a little bit um, cheesed off, I suppose, at some commentary, running commentary in relation to questioning whether there is a need uh, for the A5, because for some people that smacks of the discriminatory attitudes uh, that were there dressed up now as something else there in the past. So thankfully, as you have recognized that there's a slight profile and an increased cost, and thankfully, apart from those attitudes that we hear at times, that there is cross-party support for the A5 and the A6, and the A5 is something we need to be taking forward. The questions I would like to ask uh, relates to, uh, as part of the 20 million allocation uh, the department received in May for COVID pressures, um, I believe 750,000 went more towards community transport. So could you elaborate please in relation to the pressures that the service was facing and how they're faring out after receiving this allocation? Okay, okay, Susan. Uh, Susan, uh, or, or whoever, in relation to the transport sector, like the bus and taxi operators and taxi drivers, it's something that this committee, uh, in terms of members of the committee, were very focused on that particular sector on, and all the relevant uh, strands of it. Um, they're still hoping that additional support is coming down the line. Um, and as they will be most likely sort of taking longer than any other sector uh, to reach their pre-COVID business level. Uh, so has there been any consideration given in relation to providing financial support uh, during the monitoring rounds, for instance, for, for those in these sectors? And I'm also conscious that there's another area in relation to, for instance, taxi drivers around the entry tests. But we'll come back to that because that's one way we could get more taxi drivers into a system uh, that needs it now, as opposed to waiting, uh, waiting for months on those taxi drivers to become available. Okay, so this stage we haven't submitted a bid as part of June monitoring for any further schemes. We think the process is that we need to work through closure of the existing schemes, see where we are and at that point then consideration will be given in line with the executive's recovery strategy as to whether another scheme is required. So we're still working through that process at the moment. So consideration will be given at uh, the stage when those schemes are, as you're saying, uh, completed or dealt with? Once the schemes have been completed, then again, it'll be next steps, what needs to be considered then, yeah. Okay, so there's nothing in this June monitoring round, no. but maybe in others. Okay. No, I previously asked um, uh, the department about what it was doing in relation to the quality impact assessment, 
and uh, on the minister's, you know, finalised budget. So has that been carried out? Has the EGIA been carried out? So in terms of equality, um, on the draft budget, we completed our screening and that is available on the department's website. In terms of then the final budget position, um, we completed our capital screening and again that should be published shortly and equally then on the resource side we completed a screening too and that should be published um, in due course. In screening, in screening, was everything screened out because there would need to be an EQAA done unless yep. everything was screened out and that would hardly be likely to yep. happen across the department. From a departmental perspective, it was screened out. That was the outcome. Um, our NDPBs, the likes of um, NI Water and TransLink as a public court, will complete their own equality screenings once they get their budget outcome as well. So there's separate processes in place for those bodies. So the department is not doing a full EQAA? No, we've just completed the screening and it's been screened out. Okay, I'll pick up on that because Sherry would be concerned about that how across the department that everything was screened out. Uh, thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Beggs. Hello, <laughs> and, and thanks for your information to date. Uh, I want to go back to the resurfacing issue again, um, where Connor, you've indicated about 120 uh, million is, is hoped to be spent this year, but the Barton figure uh, recommendation was 143. Um, and my understanding is that the Arnold office estimate was there was a 1.2 billion backlog. I think that was in 2019 in, in resurfacing that's required to maintain our roads. So my question is, what is the current figure of a backlog that the department estimates uh, for resurfacing? Uh, and and um, in terms of that backlog, if we're less than Barton, so I take it we're still getting worse. Um, I, I wouldn't have a figure. Obviously, the more we spend, the better the roads get, and the, and the reduction in the backlog. Um, I wouldn't have a figure to hand. I'm not sure if it has been analysed since then, but it's something I'm happy to have a look at and come back to you. But, but would you accept if we're spending less than the Barton recommendation, the uh, uh, maintenance has not been uh, kept at the minimum level? And therefore, our roads surface are getting worse. Well, there, there's a lot of factors, you know, contribute. You know, um, the extent of winters is obviously a major factor on the <clears throat> condition of roads, which have been, you know, relatively mild in this last couple of years. So, um, it's it's the, the finance is one part of it, but the you know, there'd be reduced traffic on roads last year, for example, weather conditions wouldn't have been as bad. So there's a number of factors to be considered that would uh, contribute to that. Uh, turning to the emergency repair budget, the fixing the potholes, which I realise is, is an expensive option when you have to go that way. Um, is it still set at 50 mil and is there still a shortfall there? 50, 50 mil, a two inch hole before any repair happens? Um, yes, certainly the, the resource bid of seven million is aiming to take us to where we were last year, but we're already committed to the same level of service in relation to those key areas of pothole repair, um, grass cutting, gully emptying. So yes, it's the same as last year in that it's it's fifty mil on all roads, but twenty mil on higher traffic roads would be the trigger level for pothole repair. Okay. Then turning to the roads maintenance uh, contracts issue where um, you're, you're out of time in some areas. Um, 
I'm assuming you're looking at if there's a short-term fix, but there's also a long-term issue in terms of having to issue new new contracts. So um, where, where are we in each of those two issues? Are you trying to see if you can extend the existing contracts? And when do you propose to advertise so that there's a permanent solution? All, all those issues are being currently being considered. They're all they're they're all live and under consideration at the minute. So um, we haven't uh, concluded on those, but they're certainly um, being considered at the moment. And what's the length of time once if you have to go to tender? Um, I mean, are we still subject to the six months European um, advertising regulation? Well, there's there's different types of contracts of different timelines, uh, you know, so it depends on the, the scale and type and size of the contract. So again, we're, uh, that's something that we're looking at. Can you clarify if it's large enough? For, uh, is Northern Ireland still subject to European regulations on initiating contracts? I would believe that it is. It's something we'd possibly have to confirm separately in, in writing, but uh, I, um, don't, I'm not aware of any relaxation in, in, in requirements. Okay. Uh, Turning to your uh, in your monitoring bit, then um, you mentioned some new costs, uh, and, and then you've mentioned cybersecurity. I can understand that being a new issue. There's been major attacks on. Um, infrastructure uh, around the world, there, say, but it also mentions real infrastructure safety maintenance work. Can you allude what 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 new issues are arisen there in terms of health and safety? Because obviously that's very important that it's addressed. Again, I don't have the detail to hand on that one, but we can get some further information. I don't think it's, it's new issues that have arisen. It's more of a programme of work that needs to be taken forward in compliance with with regulations. But yeah, we we'll follow that up. Um, uh, and you've also mentioned a maintenance and training backlog. Now, my understanding is that um, uh, garages and you know, essential travel—they were all key workers, and, and they, uh, they, 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 um, or, or um, bus and trains uh, were actually operating on a reduced service during much of the COVID period. So I'm surprised to to learn that there's a. A maintenance and training backlog. So, can you explain a little bit more about why there's a maintenance and training backlog? No, uh, we don't. Sorry, we don't have that information. But we will. We'll, we'll come back to you with with the information. Two in course. Okay. Um, again, on, on the A6, I'm interested uh, in the proportion of increased uh, on the estimate costs for compensation for for. Uh, uh, a property that has had to be vested. Uh, um, certainly, I'm aware that there's been a number of major road, uh, sorry, major uh, infrastructure investments where there's been underinvestment. So, uh, I think it'd be very useful if we hear how accurate the 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 estimates that are originally put in um, turning out. And and so, I would be very interested to know as as to what proportion this additional 4.9 million bid it's you know if it has to be bought it has to be bought uh, but i'm just thinking why has it gone a uh, significant increase it's another five million pounds uh who's with those estimates and, and 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 why that has has gone wrong and then um finally in terms of dba you've indicated that there you're um, looking at additional monies there because they're operating less than full capacity in a number of areas. Now, um, I'm, I'm aware that um, ordinary garages have been operating 
um, right through the COVID period, taking sensible precaution, perhaps uh, staff wearing masks where, where they may have to briefly be in close proximity, etc. So can, again, can you allude uh, to um, why um, DBA is, is not able to work close to full capacity? Because that's quite a significant uh, additional piece of money that you're looking. Um, uh, certainly, if it is the test centres themselves, have the uh, have DBA looked to extending the hours to create additional space for staff, rather than simply reducing output? Yeah, I understand that DVA has looked at all those options to try and maximise um, what it can deliver this financial year, but still adhering to the public health advice at the same time. Uh, and, uh, do you have an explanation of why they're operating less than full capacity? I mean, what 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 restrictions have have resulted in them losing income? We probably don't have that information at hand, but I suspect. I mean. You draw the comparison with, with private garages, but they probably have less of a throughput than you would imagine going through um, a, a test centre. So it's probably so that we comply with the PHA guidelines to make sure that the, the throughput of, of any of our centres is, is compliant with the regulations to make sure that no one's health or safety has been put at risk. So that's probably why the, the numbers are, are, are lower going through. Um, than, than you would probably imagine, but it's because I suspect of, of just plan um, COVID regulations. You're saying probable. I, I mean, if you're coming here looking for uh, support for a range of issues, I would expect you to know why uh, the money is, is is required rather than what's probably required yeah, for. It's a fair um, point. Okay, thank Sorry. you. It is a fair point, um, but what we would do is fo we'll follow this up with, with DVA colleagues. We were just trying to give you an answer, but I understand. Just one final point. I noticed in terms of your forecast outcome for, for last financial year, very considerable variations in expenditure from 21 million in April to 102 million in, in March. Um, they, they obviously, and again, there's been a significant increase in, in January, February, March, and that is certainly not the best time to be putting uh, tar down on roads if that's if that's what a lot of the money was being spent on. And again, I, I don't know. But so I'm, my question is, are you looking to see how you can get a better balanced um, expenditure over all the year so that um, th there isn't panic expenditure and perhaps having to pay over the odds because of uh, limited uh, capacity uh, during a concentrated period? Yeah, I mean, you know, we're, we're developing the department's business plan at the moment and it's about making sure that we line up the objectives for this um, year alongside what our budget is. So you would hope that we would intend to make sure that our plans are, are taking account of the budget and making sure everything's properly programmed in throughout the year rather than any last-minute last expenditure. And can you give us a breakdown of what the capital expenditure plan is for the year? Because uh, all I've seen so far is, is the headline figure. Where are, you know, where, where are you proposing to spend that money? Um, um, so we have a better idea. Uh, well, we're putting capital 215 million towards Northern Ireland Water, 170 million towards TransLink, 223.1 million towards roads and rivers. Uh, Susan, any yeah, and flagship projects will account for about 78 million, and then we've got other of about 35 million, which would include the Blue Green Fund, for example, the 20 million in there, and some borrowing for our trust ports as well. One of the points I've been trying to make is that continuing to invest in 
uh, large scale infrastructure projects whilst not investing in the necessary maintenance means that the, and we haven't hit the Barton figure for maintenance, means that our road surfaces are continuing to decline. We can therefore expect to, to face higher levels in compensation, more potholes, etc., and having to pay uh, uh, for emergency repairs. It's not an efficient way to, to, to carry out uh, um, roads maintenance, but that's what we're uh, destined for unless we up our road surfacing expenditure. Well, it, it won't be an either or. But what we're trying to do is, is plan out a programme of works on roads throughout the year to, to take account of all road conditions across Northern Ireland. So there are plans, as, as I said, that have been developed across the road service, but those plans are actually being revisited just in light of recent um, legal advice. So it, there will be plans in place to make sure that all types of roads are addressed in the in the, in the coming year. And when can we use like, the advice of, of, of your plan? If Connor's on the screen there, um, Connor can tell us. You, 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 well, certainly, normally the 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 programmes are relayed through the council reports. Uh, it's our normal process, and those are happening over the next over in June and July. Uh, some will be uh, more fuller than others. You know, when we do, when we do know the programmes, some areas we, as I say, where there are issues, we'll, we'll we'll have to be have to think about how to present that. But certainly, in all areas, we really take your point that we want to be getting schemes to ground as soon as possible, and we certainly have full programmes um, that we're taking forward at the minute because we're mindful that it's better to, for a whole host of reasons, to to put, uh, put down blacktop in in the summer months with reduced traffic um, levels, longer working hours. So we're, we agree with you totally on that point. Okay, thank you. Okay, thank you, um, Deputy Chair. Cheers. Thank you. Apologies for uh, the entry to the meeting. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice isn't the best at the moment. Uh, the voluntary exit scheme obviously affected various sections across the department over a period of years and has uh, been responsible maybe for a, a reduction in, in, in skills and maybe senior, senior positions and whatnot. Uh, conscious of the resource budget, Will they be looking at ensuring staff are distributed correctly across the departments to get an even queue where there is those uh, voids? Yeah, um, I mean, the voluntary exit scheme back in 2015 certainly had an impact right across um, the Northern Ireland Civil Service, indeed, the agency that I run, um, we lost almost 20% of our staff. But you rebuild and, and move forward and, and restructure accordingly. And that's what we're trying to do as a department. And most recently, we've started having discussions um, around the senior team that um, we're going to look at our staff and look at where our priority areas are to make sure, as best as possible, that we can direct staff to, to our pressure points to make sure that every, everything is, is being taken forward in the best way that we can. I mean, it is a process, and the vagaries of recruiting staff, etc., take time. But but we we are going to be working closely to do that because we do recognise that um, with gaps across the department, as it is in all departments, um, that we need to address those and, and address those quickly to make sure that we deliver on, on all our priorities. Yeah, it's just usually whatever section of the department comes forward to give evidence, it normally rears its head as a, one of the issues, which is sort of curtailing things, you know. Yeah, but but we, we will be working to working to address that as we have been doing since phase. Um, so you know, over the last five or six years, we've been reorganising the department to make sure that we have um, the right people in the right places as best as we can. Conscious that we do have some gaps and we do um, um, have vacancies that need to be filled and work closely with Northern Ireland Civil Service HR department. Thank you. 
Thank you. And obviously there were there were a number of questions that members asked, and you're going to follow up with with, with more detail. Um, and I suppose really um, for the committee, I suppose that detail is really very important in order for us to be able to scrutinise. So, really, you, you've mentioned drafting of business plans and so on. At what point will that be then shared with the committee? Well, we're hoping to finalise the business plan in the coming weeks, and then. Um, seek ministerial approval. So I'm hoping, um, I, I would be optimistic that it would be this, this side of summer as in the next four to, four to five weeks. But um, that's the hope where we are in the, the final throes of finalising the business plan. So, so hopefully that will be there. And is it at, that, at that point then the Minister then will announce her priorities then for the remainder of the year? Well, well I, I don't know what, what ministers plan to, plan to announce. I know she announced um, recently the, the budget and, and where it's going to be directed. So within the plan, it will set out what our priorities are as a department. So I guess by extension, yeah, that's what, what that will say. Okay. Thank you very much, Declan, um, uh, Connor. Thank you for attending today. And, uh, I may not see you again, but um, certainly the committee, the committee will. Thank Good luck you. in your new role. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, we're moving then on to our second briefing, which is in relation to commercial bus service permits and transport integration. Um, Hansard won't be recording um, this section of the meeting. Um, we have the briefing paper from the department at page 127. And then in your table papers, we have the Hansard of the briefing from the bus and coach representatives um, of the 2nd of June. And we'll welcome via Starleaf with Jackie Robinson, Director of Public Transport Division, and Stuart Gilmore, the Head of Public Transport Regulation Branch. Um, you're both very welcome to the meeting this morning. Um, it's good to see you. Um, Jackie, if you'd like to um, make your opening remarks, and then members will follow up with some questions. Okay, thank you very much, Sir. Um, so tonight, thanks to you and to the committee members for the presentation for the opportunity to come and present this morning. Um, and we are going to talk through the commercial bus service permit system. So as you've already said, I'm Jackie Robinson. I'm the director of public transport. And Stuart, who's joining me today, is the head of public transport regulation branch. As detailed in your briefing note, the bus permit scheme was introduced following the Transport Act 2011. The aim of the scheme is to enable bus operators to identify gaps in the public transport network and to provide that service under a bus permit issued by the department. The system complements the public transport network that the department facilitates through the public service agreement with TransLink. The legislation sets out the considerations the department must take into account and who should be consulted when assessing those applications. The Minister and the Department recognises the valuable role that the private bus and coach sector play in delivering public transport, and I would just like to put that on record this morning. So in relation to the legislation specifically, sections 3 to 12 set out the key considerations which the Department must take into account in considering permit applications. It also sets out who the Department must consult with when processing the application, and that consultee list includes the Consumer Council, persons already providing services on any road along or near the routes which are subject to the application, the Chief Constable, District Councils, other government departments and the Tourist Board. So a number of bus permits are already in operation, including 34 regular stopping services, 26 of which are primarily for the transport of school children, 12 taxi bus services, 
five sightseeing services and three express services. If an operator identifies a gap in provision and wants to run a service to meet the need, they complete an application providing information to the department. That information includes evidence of the need for the specific route and demand on that route. In assessing the information provided, the department consults with organisations listed in the legislation. The consumer council received the original submission as well as responses from other consultees to inform their final recommendations. This does add to the time frame for the consultation stage, but also recognises that in the legislation, the department is required to take account of the recommendations made by CCNI, and this additional step ensures that they have all the available information to help inform those recommendations. You will be aware that following an unsuccessful application for a bus permit, an operator did apply for a judicial review of the process. Following on from that JR application, the department reviewed the process used for permit applications and made a number of changes to ensure the process was robust and that sufficient expert advice was included in the decision making. In developing the changes to the process, the department engaged with a number of key stakeholders, including Bus and Coach NI, who represent a large part of the private bus and coach industry in Northern Ireland, and also um, several bus permit operators. We also consulted with TransLink, MTAC, the NTA, Tourism NI, PSNI, DBA, and the Consumer Council. These changes were subsequently approved by the department in May 2019. Following restoration of the assembly, the minister approved the referral of applications to her when the application is assessed to have a significant impact on the strategic public transport network or present potential policy implications. The most significant changes relating to the creation of the new branch public transport within public transport division, so that's the public transport regulation branch that Stuart heads up, and that's branches tasked with administering the system as well as the introduction of a determination panel to consider new applications. The purpose of the panel is to provide a more detailed scrutiny and review of all available evidence. The three-person panel is chaired by the Director of Public Transport Division, currently me, in addition to two DFI staff at Grade 5 or Grade 6 level. The panel considers the evidence provided and make a determination to approve, refuse or where an application is assessed to have a significant impact on the strategic public transport network, the panel can refer the determination to the Minister. To ensure a robust evidence-based approach, the panel are provided with all evidence submitted by the applicant responses and comments from consultees, any available specialist advice, and analysis prepared by the branch. In addition, a background brief is also prepared for panel members to advise them on the relevant legislative considerations and other issues in making a consideration. This is important to ensure that all panel members are fully aware of the background and the legal context in which they take decisions. They also sign conflict of interest declarations. In the case of renewal and amendment applications, the Head of Public Transport Regulation Branch considers these and a determination panel is not required. Other changes to the process include the use of specialist advice where necessary, so for example economists, statisticians, transport planners, and an increased cooperation between the department and the applicants throughout the process. The applicant now has the ability to see and agree what will be issued to consultees. 
All of the changes made are designed to improve the process and ensure it provides for fair and robust decision making within the bounds of the legislation. This has resulted in an increase in the estimated time to process applications. So the first permit application to be processed under these new arrangements was approved by the department in December 2019. A further 11 applications have been processed, with five being approved and six being referred to the minister. As a result of the changes, draft guidelines document was issued to operators, industry groups and the Consumer Council in March of this year. Following written feedback and a meeting in April, officials agreed to do further work on the guidelines and to undertake a wider, more detailed consultation exercise. In terms of engagement, the department established a bus operator forum in December 2019, which has continued to meet regularly since then. The aim of this forum is to increase communication and engagement with the industry and to work in collaboration with operators to deliver a valuable addition to the public transport offering in Northern Ireland. I understand that BCNI have also provided the committee with a copy of their feedback to the draft guidelines. And in the written feedback that the department has provided to you, we have endeavoured to address the issues insofar as possible. I do not intend to reiterate the briefing, but we will be happy to address any concerns. I would, however, like to take a couple of minutes to elaborate on the increase in timeframes included in the draft, in the draft guidelines. So the increase in the time frame is significant and represents a number of things. Firstly, experience from the department in the time it takes to complete the application process. Secondly, the need to allow time for expert consideration and the running of a determination panel. It also includes an increased time frame for consultation. This reflects feedback from consultees that they should be given sufficient time to give due consideration to the information presented to them. I appreciate that the increased time frame is frustrating, but I hope that making it clear to potential applicants in advance how long the process may take will allow them to plan. There are opportunities for the process to be considerably shorter, and we will regularly review the process and update our guidelines as we learn more. In relation to the process for renewal applications, there are again opportunities for refinement and streamlining and we will keep that under review as the next generation of renewals are processed. While renewal applications do not require submission to the termination panel, consultation with the consultees is required, and that's set down in legislation. Permit renewal is required every three years, and again, that was set in legislation. As I've already said, following the issues raised by the industry in relation to the draft guidelines, we will be engaging with them over the coming months to ensure that the guidelines are accurate and best serve the needs of industry while ensuring that the legislative requirements are maintained. So, Chair and Committee Members, Stuart and I will be very happy to answer any questions you may have. Okay, thank you very much, Jackie, for your your presentation. Um, and I mean, you have paid tribute to the sector and that you've recognised um, the, um, the role that they play but they have been under severe um, challenge this last year. Um, they have had difficulties, particularly with regards to um, sort of tourist aspect of their businesses. Um, they have sought and indeed faced a number of challenges in relation to financial support. So you can see that this is a sector which is under severe pressure. 
Um, and obviously at this stage now, when they have a meeting, as we understand, on the 14th of, of April, um, where they, they feel that this is the first opportunity that they've had to present with um, new guidance, that it comes to them as a, as a shock, as you will, um, you will know from um, the presentation that we received um, last week. Um, they do feel that, in some ways, that they're perhaps not um, highly regarded, um, that there is no real place for them in, in the delivery of um, transport routes. Um, can I just ask, from a general perspective, um, where the department sees um, the, um, the private operators, um, where their role really is in, in the delivery of transport service? So, as I've already said, the, the purpose of this scheme is to allow private operators to provide services which complement the network, um, which is primarily delivered through the PSA with TransLink, as you're well aware. Um, the PSA stipulates that um, the transport holding company or TransLink must deliver most public transport services, but we're very aware that there are gaps in that provision. And we would very much like the private sector to be able to, to help us and fill those gaps. Um, and ultimately, the most important people in all this are the passengers on board our public transport network. Um, we have presented to the, the stakeholder forum or the, the, the forum that we have with the bus operators what we consider to be a gap analysis. And I know that that wasn't complete. Um, but it did give an indication of where we thought there was potential gaps. Um, and we would very much like to work on a collaborative basis with the industry to make sure that the public in Northern Ireland are best served by the transport offering that is available to them. Okay, and you've talked about um, wanting to work collaboratively. Yeah. At our meeting last week, um, Karen McGill was said to us that um, they attended a meeting on the 14th of April, um, where that was the first that they had being presented with the guidance where they learned that um, Minister Mallon had agreed a new process. She says, we were not consulted on it, nor were we party to that new process. It is a done deal. Um, and obviously the draft guidance reflects that new process. Is that the case? I, I do think that there was engagement with the industry. Um, so there was engagement with the industry throughout from 2018 um, and throughout 2018 and 2019 um, before the new guidance was um, issued. Um, my understanding is that it was presented to them in summer 2020 as well um, and that they did have initial sight of that. Um, I, I do, however, um, realise that the industry weren't happy with that meeting in April. Um, I wasn't in attendance at that meeting, but I have subsequently met with Karen, um, and we have agreed that it, you know as we move forward, we will do so very much in a collaborative basis, and we intend to do these um, guidelines in a co-production way. But I have to say that some of the things within the guidelines are set out in legislation, and um, there is a process which has been put in place, and it largely reflects. And the JR application that went through the courts, um, or or went was going to be considered. Um, so there there are some things where I think what we have done is to improve the process, and I would be reluctant to go back on that. So if you think about, for example, the determination panel, 
So as opposed to one person making a decision on an application, there are now three people um, who have a level of independence um, and can analyze and scrutinize the information in much more detail. Um, I think that's a good thing to do. Um, and I would like to have the conversation again with Karen. Um, and if the committee feel that that, that isn't appropriate, I, personally, I, I think it is the best way of doing this. It's the best way of making sure that there is a transparent process in place. Um, and I would be keen to continue with that. Where there may be some opportunities for the process to be refined would be around, so for example, the, the consultation exercise. Um, but I would be... You know, one, one of the things that we did whenever we were looking at the process was actually go back out to the consultees and say, in order to, in order to properly assess this, how much time do you need? Um, and the time that they have been given previously was actually quite tight. Um, so I think we have better reflected what is needed. Um, and some of these applications are coming in are very significant. And they require a lot of scrutiny. And I think the process that we now are considering is much more balanced um, and, and actually is a better outcome for the industry. Okay, and, and I appreciate that. And I think I suppose there, there will be lessons that will be learned throughout this process. But I suppose what I would urge is that there is um, better collaboration between um, yourselves and the sector. There aren't a huge number of them. Um, they are keen to deliver a service, and, and, and a lot of that will be at their own sort of uh, financial risk as well. And, and I do appreciate um, the terms of the agreement that you have with, with TransLink and so on as well. But I suppose I, I would urge sort of going forward that you know this committee essentially doesn't then become um, as having to facilitate a, a discussion between the department and the sector, and that that should be happening naturally. Yeah, and Chair, I, I, you know, I very much I couldn't agree with you more. Um, and I would very much like to, to enter into that agreement with them and to be able to, to go forward with the industry in a collaborative way. And um, you, you're aware yourself that I haven't been in this post very long, and I'm still working to build up relationships with the industry. Working in a COVID scenario where we we can't actually get together into the room. Um, makes those things more difficult, but it is a priority for me to do that. Okay, thank you very much. Um, Deputy Chair, David. Thank you, Chair, and thank you, Jackie, for your presentation. Uh, can you expand on the, on the sixth criterion or, or the key recommendations when considering the, the commercial bus service permits? The, uh, I think it's uh, such other matters that may be presented or prescribed. Sorry, could you just repeat that for me? Sorry, I'm looking, I'm looking at you to expand on the the sixth key recommendation. Uh, so I just lost it in the cell. Key considerations in relation to uh, the sixth criterion that you saw, don't note it down there, it comes under F, uh, such other matters as may be prescribed. Could you expand a wee bit on that for us, please? Um, so, so whenever we're looking at applications, we will look at... Um, at any other at any issues which are significant so um, the, the, the legislation um, as written in 2011 probably put that in as a catch-all it does allow us to think about what is going to impact on the sector and allows us to bring in current factors so for example you you may be thinking about a COVID scenario you may be thinking about um, school children and the need for that service 
and um, you may be thinking about the financial implications on other operators within the network and and i just want to be clear that that just doesn't apply to translink and that there may be other operators on an on a route and we have to take their considerations into account as well okay thank you uh, the, the six listed uh, key recommendations there it do they all carry equal weighting or is it a case of you, you don't qualify on one you're out or you know, is there a veto situation on that? There wouldn't be a veto situation. And again, this goes back to, to the comment I was, I was making to the chair about the, the fact that there is a panel. So if you think about an interview situation where, where you're being interviewed and having a panel of three people brings um, a level of consistency and a level of critical challenge between that panel. Um, and that's what the panel in this case does as well. So, so while one person may have a view, the panel actually um, level levels that out and make sure that there is there is good um, consideration and a robust um, discussion on those. Okay, thank you. Uh, how how much of an increase to time required to progress applications has the new process estimated to have contributed? So it, it has. Now I would have to say it, it is significantly more. Um, but that has so what we have tried to do in the process as we've set down in the guidelines is to put out the maximum time so at probably every stage there is potential for that to be reduced and um, one of the the key things that i would actually like to focus on and, and obviously at the moment the focus has to be on getting the guidelines out but, but the next bit that i would like to do is to actually look at the application form because quite often we get an application form in which isn't complete um, and we have to go back and forward to the applicant to get more information. That, that increases the time period um, to, in order to process that. So I would like to have a look at that application and see, is there something that we can do so that it is more easily understood, better understood, and that we get the information then that we require the first time? And that would reduce the, the time frame as well. The time frame for the consultation exercise um, I, I don't think there's an awful lot we're going to be able to do about it. And that goes back to the comment I made about the Consumer Council. So what happens is that the applicant will have an opportunity to look at the information which is going out to consult consultees. That then goes out, the consultees have an opportunity to respond to it and to bring in evidence. That evidence then goes back out to Consumer Council to help inform their decision making. So that is a fairly lengthy process if it is a controversial or significant um, application. And the other bit that has added a bit of time is in relation to the determination panel. So these the, the determination panel is made up from um, fairly um, high level civil servants trying to get through them and um, to, to get to get time frame in their diary isn't always the easiest but we do our best to do that and to put that in place as quickly as we can but we also need to make sure that they have sufficient time to get the evidence and um, pack to them and to have consideration of that so while there is an increased time frame there are opportunities to reduce it and i think the fact that there is the increased time frame is a balance um, between having something which is very quick and having a process which is robust and transparent. Okay, thank you. Uh, it just concerns me that the, the news of the issues relating to taxi drivers uh, in recent days isn't good due to probably 
different systems and whatnot and stuff and people walking away from it. I'd just be worried that the bus industry goes down the same road, you know. Uh, it's just that worry that I have, and I would encourage you to try and do your best to really try and facilitate, you know. Uh, my last question, sorry. Sorry, as, as, as I've already said to the Chair, you know, I, I really want to engage with the industry going forward um, and where we can facilitate. We will, but it has to be within the legislation um, and, and the, the remit that we have available to us. Okay, and uh, finally, how regularly does the Bus Operator Forum meet and uh, in what format? So the Bus Operator Forum um, is chaired by, by Stuart. Um, I think Stuart will correct me on this one. I think it meets quarterly, Stuart. That, that's the intention, yeah. We we met a lot more frequently last summer, especially due to, due to COVID, just to keep up to date with the operators. Uh, the intention is at minimum to meet quarterly. So this year we met, we actually met in February, then we met in April, as you're, as you're aware. Um, and the, the intention was to try and get another meeting in. Uh, you know, at some point of the summer, and then another meeting in September on the, the sort of the one year before PSVR exemptions kick in. And is that done by a Zoom at the minute, or is there actual face to face meetings? Or it's still unfortunately by Zoom, but, but we we will attempt to go back to face to face meetings as soon as we can. Okay, thank you. Thank you, um, Mr. Buchanan. Thank you. And just, just to follow on from um, David's point, Jackie, just on that uh, bus operator forum, is that the overarching organisations, isn't that, or is that individual operators that's on that forum? So, bus, again, Stuart will come in with the detail of, of who attends that. Um, but both bus and coach and I are there, who are both the umbrella of. Op- organizer but we also have operators too. Stuart, do you want to list those who are invited? Yeah, that's I mean that's correct. We we send the invitation out to Busing Coach NI and also to Coach Operators NI and we invite along every single operator who holds a permit. And more recently with the with the draft guidelines we actually we extended that out to operators who had an active application. So not permit holders yet but um, they had an application because we wanted to hear their views on the process as well. Um, so, and you know, there's an open invitation. We we advise Bus and Coach and I and Coach Operators and I if there's anyone they know of who wants to come along and learn more about the bus permit system, they're they're more than welcome to come along. But we we don't we don't openly invite all 200 operators. Okay, thank you. And David has already asked a few of my other questions. I think he's actually seen my sheet here. Uh, that said, I want to give a sort of an example, uh, Jackie, of a, an operator. Let's say they're running a, uh, they've got a permit to run, a, say, a 5 p.m. for argument's sake from Belfast to Londonderry. And then that has to be renewed, if correct me at any time if I'm wrong, that has to be renewed every three years. But in the meantime, time Translink runs a 5 p.m. So what happens whenever that private operator wants to renew his or her permit, considering TransLink has then took over that 5 p.m., and can they take over that 5 p.m.? So how does that process work? The private operator has got the permit, TransLink comes along, ultimately steals his uh, commuters. How does that process work, and how does then both things tie together? Okay, well, um, I wouldn't like to think that TransLink were stealing commuters off routes. Um, and I'm not sure that that would happen in practice. But if, if I just maybe go back, 
to what TransLink can do. So, so you'll be aware that TransLink um, operate under a PSA with the department. Within that PSA, they have flexibility to make temporary or permanent changes to the network. Um, so temporary changes can be things like um, timetable or route change in the, in the event of essential maintenance, civil unrest, holiday season timetables, those sort of things that you would expect. Um, in relation to permanent changes, the overall network is divided into districts. So there are three metro districts, just for example. And for permanent changes that constitute over 3% of the scheduled mileage per district per month, TransLink need approval from the department before the change is made. For permanent changes that constitute no more than 3% of the scheduled mileage, TransLink notify the department as part of the normal um, reporting process. These arrangements allow TransLink to manage the network on behalf of the department and to respond appropriately to unforeseen events and seasonal variations in demand. And they also allow them to make adjustments to the services, routes, or timetables where passenger demand um, is sufficient or, or where there is an issue. And that, that was one that particularly came to mind over COVID. Um, so sometimes additional buses were put on, especially as we started to move out of restrictions um, and, and to make sure that there was maintaining of social distancing. Um, but we need to ensure there is a dynamic, sustainable network which responds to the change in needs. So under Regulation 1370, which is what the PSA is, is established under, the authority grants exclusive rights to the operator to discharge the public service obligations. Um, so, but within the PSA, TransLink have exclusive rights to deliver the service set out in the PSA as per the timetable. They don't have exclusive rights to a route in themselves. So if they came forward with a route, as you have set out, were they actually duplicating a route already put in place, then I think that the department would be looking to challenge that. One of the things that we are starting to look to, or, or we're very much looking to, not just starting, is the PSA um, and the review of that, because the current one expires in March 2022. Um, so we're currently in the process of doing that. Um, I think we wrote to the committee in the middle of March to alert you to it. Um, so the new PSA will be for a period of five years with an option for a two-year extension. Um, and under that PSA, TransLink will be required to deliver the current network of services in Northern Ireland, as well as the cross-border services. The new PSA will include new performance framework which sets targets for TransLink um, and will be reviewed annually. And contract management arrangements will be reviewed as part of this review. Where necessary, they're going to be strengthened to provide required assurance and to enable robust monitoring and oversight of performance and of route management. So I don't know if that helps or not. No, fair enough. Thank you. Um, so is the private operator at a disadvantage whenever he or she goes to do a renewal in three years, if TransLink have come in closer to you know, the 30-minute route, which I'm not an expert on, but are they at a disadvantage then, considering they were doing the route, TransLink may have moved something which they're possibly entitled to do. Are they at a disadvantage? I would say the, the private operator coming through with the renewal is, a, is a, an advantage rather than a disadvantage because that route is already in place. They have already proven demand for the route and the service. Okay. Um, and I, it, well, it, it's hard for me to say, you know, if, if I was faced with that example, um, but, but at the moment I haven't been faced with it. But I, 
you know, I, I think on a renewal basis, the the operator will be the person who has the advantage, the private operator. Okay, thank you. And one just quick final question. On the on the guidelines, are they in draft or not draft? I'm a bit confused. Are they in draft guidelines at the moment? Are they active guidelines? So so they are guidelines. No, so yeah, I just want to be clear on this one. So so the process was amended. The process as amended was approved by the department. Um, I know there is a debate on whether the industry was consulted. The department would say that they were, um, and we, we have you know we have notes of meetings where that process change was discussed. It was the new process was approved by the department in 2019, um, and approved by the minister following the restoration of the assembly. And it was at that stage when the minister agreed that in certain cases um, applications would be moved to her. The guidelines that are being drafted are very much in draft and what went out to the industry in March this year was a draft and um, following the meeting, following the, the, the sending out of the information in March and the meeting which happened in April, um, we as officials are very aware that industry aren't happy with the, the guidelines. We are starting to work with them, hopefully in a co-production type way, but I would just like to say that the process currently has been agreed. Um, I think it is it is in line with the JR application, which was taken through. Um, and I think it would be difficult to roll back on some of those changes because I do think that they have, are a more robust way of making decisions. Um, however, where there is an opportunity to, to reflect and to amend, tweak the, the process, we will do that if we can. Um, but in relation to the guidelines document itself, it is very much in draft and we will work with the industry. So there was a couple of things. So for example, um, and this is probably a fairly minor example, but one of the things that the industry has said to us is that in relation to what evidence they have to provide, the, the guidance document doesn't give sufficient detail. Now, I'm a bit reluctant to go down the route of, of setting that out in guidelines because I don't want it to be seen as a definitive um, list of what example or what evidence is required because every application will be different. But I do intend to work with the industry to see if we can come up with examples which will help them. Um, and again, it's about you know, th these guidelines documents are for the industry and for the department in order to make this process as easy as, as we all can and it's it's been a very difficult journey I have to say um, but but we where we can we will make this better hopefully going forward. Thank you Jackie Stewart. Okay thank you. Um, I have six members who have indicated and then we're running really short of time. There may be a little bit of leeway for us before we have to leave the room but can I just let members uh, make them aware that we are under pressure. Um, I'll call um, Ms. Kimmins first of all, please. Thank you, and thank you, Jackie. Um, I, I'll keep it brief because some of what I was going to ask has been covered. Um, and I just I suppose really want to reiterate the point that I mean, you know, from our meeting with the, the operators last week, um, it's quite contrary to what we're hearing this morning. And you know, they certainly feel that they're being ill-treated by the department, and they feel that they're that it's like they're trying to be locked out of the sector. Um, rather than, than at an advantage. Um, particularly around, you know, Jackie, you mentioned there that you, you were under the impression that there had been engagement. I mean, they, they have said very clearly that there was 
little to no engagement with them and, and they said that they felt there was a lack of proper consultation in relation to this. Um, so I suppose I, I had planned to ask whether, you know, why there was no engagement, but obviously you're saying that, that there was as, as far back as last year. I think that's something we do need to clarify um, before, you know, in terms of what engagement there was before draft changes were made, because they're certainly saying that, you know, that that wasn't the case um, and that they didn't hear anything about the changing guidance until April um, when they were sent copies of the draft. Um, and I suppose just in, in relation to that, then I, the real, the only question I wanted to ask was around that was just why was the change so suddenly? Um, you know, what, what, what would be the explanation for that? So, and, and again, you know, I, I'm not going to, you know, I, I think I think it's very clear there is a difference in interpretation between the industry and the department and what engagement happened. Um, but in relation to the fact that the guidelines and the new process were just introduced in March um, and April into the system, um, I think we have to recognise that the first application through this process was in, at the end of 2019. There have been 12 applications through this process already. Um, so, so this is not something which, which is brand new to, to anybody. Um, but like we will, you know, I'm, I'm not going to get into he said, she said and, and anything. I, I think um, we, we will take back, we, you know, if the engagement was not to the extent that the industry would have liked, then we will take that on board. And we will make sure going forward that any consultation is more formal and more robust um, and extensive. Yeah, I mean, I think that would be helpful, um, you know, especially going forward. And, if, you know, over that, as you know yourself, over the last number of months, particularly around COVID support and all of that as well, there have been other issues too. And engagement was one of the issues that has been highlighted with us um, repeatedly. So if we can do all we can to improve that, I think that would certainly help. The only other question, just in relation to the 30-minute rule, I know um, Mr Buchanan talked about this as well. I mean, can I ask then why the department did feel it was necessary to seek clarification of the 30-minute rule? Because, again, the sector described this um, as, as almost bringing the shutters down on any express service permits um, being awarded in future. So I know you said that you think that it's more of an advantage, but... Just to get yeah, so, so, I, I, so I'm, I'm where I was talking about it being an advantage, I think it's an, it is an advantage to a sitting tenant over um, you know, to, to somebody coming in for a renewal than it is over somebody trying to apply, whether that's TransLink or anyone else, to run the same service. In relation to the 30-minute rule, there was a bit of ambiguity around whether that is for all services or whether you take um, regular stopping services as one category and apply the 30-minute rule or whether express services, you know, and, and express services separately or whether the two are together. Now, the, the review that we're taking forward, it, it, this goes back to um, my lack of historical knowledge in this work area. And I would like to go back to basics and make sure that we're doing what we intend to do. But the 30-minute rule is designed to protect people and to make sure that whoever is currently working on that route is not disadvantaged by somebody new coming in. What I want to do by way of the review is to go back, make sure that we're you know, applying that regularly and that there is um, no ambiguity in the approach. Up until now, there appears to have been a little bit of ambiguity in whether 
the 30 minute rule applies to all services or whether you take it by category and apply it. What I want to do is have a definitive statement. Um, I do want to work through with the industry on this. Um, we're fairly well at the stage where probably at their next meeting we'll have a discussion on this. Um, I also have um, asked for the Consumer Council's view on it in order to make sure that, that we take that on board. Because again, it goes back you know, to, to some of the, the, the comments I made to the chair at the beginning. The passengers are the important people in this. It's to make sure that we have a good service provision um, for them. Um, so the 30-minute rule review will just provide clarity on that. But I would also say the 30-minute rule is not a legislative requirement. And there has always been the, the idea that it could be set aside. So whenever a panel is looking at an application, they may choose to set aside the 30-minute rule, whether they think it, it needs to apply or not. They can actually choose to set it aside if they think, for example, that there is sufficient evidence of demand for the service. So, so if you know, coming out of, of Nuri, I'll, I'll use Nuri as an example, and they, they thought that the current service provision was insufficient and you know you had passengers not being picked up, then maybe that 30-minute rule can be set aside and you can allow another operator to come in, you know, 15 minutes difference, as opposed to, to making sure it's more than half an hour. So, um, so I suppose the, the current review is really to provide clarity and to make sure there is no ambiguity going forward. Okay, well, I think, I mean, as you said there, with engagement with the sector, I think that's something that will um, need to be sort of nailed down and people have a, a proper understanding because certainly the, the sense we were getting from the operators was that it was any attempt to reinterpret the 30-minute rule would, would do the opposite of what's currently in place and, and prevent regular stop and service and express service coexisting um, along a shared or partially shared route. So, I mean, I think that is a very important one. So if there if there's if there's good engagement and on, on the sector able to get their views across and we can get some of that um resolved, I think that would be very helpful. But Chair, I'm conscious there's other people looking to come in, so I leave it at that. But thank you, thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Ms. Kimmins. Thank you, Ms. Boyle, Mr. Boylan. Yeah, thanks, Chair, and thanks, Jackie and Stuart. Jackie, just to follow on from a colleague, clear, clearly the industry feel um, that they have been badly treated in relation to this. I mean, comments like obstructive and also um, raise barriers for, for the industry in terms of um, being part of the public transport network. I mean, we received that, received that commentary last week. So my question, my first question to you about three questions, specific questions. Why did the department feel the need to change the determination process and at what level was that uh, taken? Okay, so the determination process was changed following um, a judicial review, a judicial review application. Um, so as part of that judicial review, the, the it, it was stated that there was insufficient analysis and consideration so in order to try and ensure that that didn't happen going forward, a determination panel was introduced. This makes it, as I've already stated, a more robust process. It makes sure that we have three people making that decision. And um, those three people meet, I, I've only been on one determination panel so far, but those three people meet as far as possible in a room. Um, and that allows a really good flow of information. So um, the, all the evidence that is provided 
can be discussed the um, evidence of you know specific interests or the advice from specialists for example the economists and the transport planners can be taken into consideration and have a fairly good and robust consideration around that and um, i think moving forward that 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 is a more um it, it's a better more transparent process than having an individual making those decisions and um, I'm, I'm not in any way undermining Stuart because previously it would have been his role to make those determinations, but I think having one person making them as opposed to having three, the, the three-person panel is, is going to be a more robust process. The um, decision on that was um, the, the, the process changes were recommended by the department for what were approved at firm sec level. Right, and just in terms of the actual guidelines itself, the, the industry is saying there's yet specific guidelines that essentially turns the industry on its head and, and presents barriers. So in terms of the guidelines, and I know you're saying there you want to consult the industry, what's the scope for, for looking at those guidelines and working with the industry to try and open that up a bit to, to make it more accessible for the industry? So, so I want to break this down into three pieces. Okay, so there, there are parts of the guidelines which are legislative-based. Um, the only way that we can change those is, is by putting through an amendment to the 2011 Act. Um, so for me, that's, you know, that we would need a very good evidence base to start to go down that process. There are parts of the process which have been approved at permanent secretary and ministerial level. And while they are still open for discussion, again, I would want a fairly robust consideration around what those, what, what any changes in relation to that might be. Um, and at, at the moment, um, I would still be of the view that the changes that were made as part of that process just improve the system. You know, albeit that there is a bigger time frame, um, I do think that they improve the system. Then within the guidelines, there are pieces of it which um, are, are probably open to a bit more discussion. So, so there is still scope there. There are a couple of things which weren't included in the draft guidelines in March, and that's because they're still with the department for consideration. So, so those would be around station access and journey planner. Um, and we are currently actively working um, with the, on those two issues um, and we'll continue to engage with the industry going forward to see how best we can, we can position that. Uh, just a final point, and you may or may not be able to respond to this, I mean, but in relation to the Hannans case, and I mean, as well, rehearsed, we've, we've had a number of briefings on it. In terms of one of our cases where they, you, you had said they did not supply, you know, enough, uh, you know, sufficient evidence, they, they, they challenged that. Would you like to comment on exactly what was the evidence they were supposed to provide or, or any commentary around that, please? Okay, so... Um, um um, I'm going to deplete on this one. So, um, Hannans were informed on the 30th of March of the decision. So that was in relation to six applications, and I'm assuming it's one of those that you're referring to. Yeah. The decision was made in line with the legislation um, on which all permit applications are based. We are still within the time frame for a judicial review against those applications, and that time frame extends, I think, until the 30th of June. And on that basis, I don't think it's appropriate for me to enter into a conversation at this time. Um, 
Okay, no, I appreciate that, but it, but it's it's just a point I had to raise with. Just a final point. Jay, we have to get to this point where because the industry feel that in the department keeps moving the goalposts. So I mean, we need to ensure that the the consultations that continue from now, the start from now, sorry, um, will will continue and like I say, make it more accessible for them for the industry and welcome them into the transport industry. Okay, but thank you very much for your answers. Thank you. Okay, thank you, Mr. Boylan. Thank you, Miss Miss Anderson. Um, thank you, thank you, Jackie, thank you, Chair. And look, Jackie, I, I appreciate what you said this morning about value in the industry, but the, the private bus and coach operators, they don't feel valued. They feel they face obstacles in the department. And that, for instance, when they saw the documents given to the minister about the change in the permit process, you know, the reps in the sector described this as wholly unfair. Um, because it didn't mention their opposition, which was clearly expressed to the department from the sector. So, Jackie, you have to take on board. They don't feel valued. They feel ignored. And so whilst they probably appreciate your comments this morning, they don't want tea and sympathy. And so the question that they need answered, why if the department values the consultation uh, with the sector, did it not reflect clearly expressed views from the sector when the documentation was given to the minister about change in the permit process? Okay, um, and th thanks for that question. Um, what I would say is that my understanding is that that submission to the minister was based on the best evidence. Um, it was before my time within this post. Um, so I, I don't want to, to second guess the quality of that, um, but we will we will continue continue to look at that. I think probably more importantly than looking back is the idea that we do look forward. And um, I've already said today that you know I really do want to work with the industry in a co-production type way. I think if we start to look at that and to look at how we start to build relationships, and I totally totally understand where you're coming from. I totally understand the, the industry's perspective on where the relationship is at the moment. Um, and all I can say is that I'm going to work very hard to improve that and to, to, to let's get up, up the hell on it. Well, I, I would probably recommend, Jackie, then that you don't start off or someone else left on with this notion of whatever and how you define best evidence. Because best evidence is not co-design. And co-design is what we're hearing from executive ministers um, in relation to how they're going to take things forward. You can't ignore what someone is saying to you and the industry is saying to you because it's not um, regarded as best evidence. And so I would just um, appreciate what you're saying, that you want to have that working relationship with them. So do we, um, because we it's not good. It's not good for the public to be hearing that there is a sector that is valued by all of us, appreciated by many, who have used, if not all of their customers, and that they don't feel that they're having that best relationship with the, with the department. So uh, good luck going forward with that, and hopefully we'll not have to hear many more complaints from the department or from the sector as a result of your own intervention with them. Jackie, can I ask you about the journey planner? Because in your briefing stated it was no longer viable due to increased levels of information. Now, surely it's not that uh, complex to arrange 
so that the public um, public is aware of the extent of the service is, that is available. And I'm talking primarily for myself in terms of our own experience here in this constituency of the Derry Airporter, really a valued service uh, in this city, not just in the city, but across uh, the Northwest. But it's been trying to get on the journey planner for years and uh, and they're finding that very frustrating and so are we the customers who use that service mm-hmm. okay so so just in relation to journey planner um so the service so J- journey planner was opened up to operators and i think it was 2012 um, and that was on a pilot basis at that stage only one operator took it up um, and they were included on journey planner the, the journey planner has changed during that period of time and if you think even about the technology and um, that has happened over the technology changes that have happened over the last nine years they have been fairly significant on how we access information has changed so the information that is contained on journey planner needs to be quite detailed there was some changes to the system and as a result the operator who had been on from 2012 their information and um, what was missed um, and the, the, the level of detail that is currently required was not provided by the operator to TransLink. Now, I am aware that TransLink are engaging um, actively. You know, I, I mean, literally this week, they are engaging with that operator. Um, and that operator will come back onto Journey Planner whenever they have their post-COVID scheduling sorted. Um, in relation to Airporter, that's a slightly different issue because it operates and um, it's not a public transport so so it operates from a place to an airport and you have to book it in advance so it's slightly different so in order to try and get around that translink are working with the airport or at the minute and what they're proposing to do is actually put a link on the journey planner so it so the journey planner won't reflect the airporter journeys but it will give a link and that link will take to the airporter and you'll be able to pick up their journey times there and make your booking. Now, one of the things that I want, want, want to think about going forward is actually what is best, and again, I keep coming back to what is best for, for our passengers and the people who are using this service. Um, and, and we should have something which is fairly joined up. But TransLink are providing services but are also operating journey planner. Whenever they do that, there is a data protection, potentially data protection issues in there. There are also, and I'm, I'm going to get into this stage where um, I, I don't know what I'm talking about, but do you know whenever you apply, you, you, you try and, and buy a new pair of shoes and all of a sudden you're getting all these ads on your system? That's because of information and the fact that people can access your journey and, and what you have looked at. It's the same with journey planners. So Translink would have access to the number of clicks and who people have, you know, what people, what journeys people have looked for. So is that appropriate for them to have access to that information for private operators? We need to bottom that out. We need to think about how best to go forward with this. But it is something we're under active consideration with Translink on. Well, I'm glad to hear that Translink is engaging with Derry uh, Airporter. Uh, on this, I appreciate the importance of data protection, um, but I also know too, as passengers, you don't want to go to a link, they have to go to another link, they get access to the information. So anything that can be done uh, to join that up, I, I think would be appreciated, particularly for for my constituents who need the airporter to get to the airports in Belfast. 
um, because there are no other service really doing that. So one last uh, thing can I ask you, I'm not sure if you are giving this any attention um, with your other colleagues in other divisions in the department, but when we're talking about post-recovery and we're talking about, for instance, uh, one of the members had made reference to the taxi industry and the many taxi drivers that have left that industry and they don't want the same thing happening to private boats, bus and coach operators. But um, is there any consideration given to a temporary postponement of the entry test uh, for taxi drivers to get them back into the industry, way, like the way it was in 2016 uh, before the entry test came into, uh, came into existence? And it's only to try to assist the industry as part of the post-COVID recovery, given that there is such a lack of taxi drivers now out there and it can take in three to six months to do the theory test and it's only, it would only be a proposal around the temporary postponement of it to help them deal with the pressures that they are currently under. To be perfectly frank with you, that, that's not something that I would have any knowledge of at all and I would be reluctant to try and, and answer it. We'll, we'll maybe send something back to the committee. Okay, that would be good. Thank you, Chair. Okay, thank yeah, you. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you, Chair. We are running short of time. Um, Mr. Muir? Uh, thank you very much, Chair, and um, thank you, uh, Jackie. It's appreciated. And a lot of my questions have been answered. Also, the paper you provided uh, for this committee meeting was very informative, so I appreciate that. Uh, I would, however, have to echo the comments from some members about the frustration which was expressed, no doubt you saw the Hansard or the, the proceedings last week from the, from the, from the operators. I think there was a, it would be fair to describe that people were feeling that they weren't getting a level playing field and, and a fair crack of the whip really, and that's something that can be, it obviously affects them commercially in the environment that they're in, but it's also, you know, it's an issue of fairness really. And just just two, two things. Um, one is around the shared facilities regulations, and mm -hmm. if there's any plans or any timescales for for introduction of those. And then the other one, and the conscious of time, so it's just two questions. I have another issue for AOB, if I a chance, Chair, but um, uh, is about the 30 minute rule. And it's just the time scales for, for the uh, engagement and consultation around that. Because to me, obviously there was a range of issues last week, but one of the issues was around the 30 minute rule and particularly around the operation of express coach services. And they felt that that was one of the key impediments in terms of being able to get that fair chance to, uh, to operate, so hopefully that's two issues. Okay, so from the point of view, of, I'll take the last one first. So from the point of view of the 30 minute rule, um, I would be hopeful um, and just it's very conscious of the fact that I'm the person holding this up at the minute and there has been work done and it's sitting on my desk, um, but I would be very hopeful within the next you know, sort of four to six weeks to be in a position to try and bottom that out with the industry. So, so please don't hold me to that four to six weeks, but it slips to seven, but um, it's, it's that sort of time frame rather than the autumn, if, if that's helpful. Um, yeah. And shared and, facilities? In, in relation to the shared facilities then, um, sh shared facilities are um, really about station access and, and where um, operators would share the facilities with TransLink. So there have been two requests for um, shared facility um, access, as far as I'm aware. Um, 
one of the services um, requested hasn't actually commenced yet and the other has been um, allowed um, and, and Transmit do allow it. In relation to, so within the PSA between the department and TransLink, TransLink will look at requests from third party access in good faith. All right, so, so, so that's, that's our underlying principle in this. In doing so, however, they have to look at health and safety and safe operating practices. Um, and I'm sure you would agree with me that that's pretty fundamental to, to, to any public transport station. So we're currently working on the new PSA within TransLink and or with TransLink, and we're going to look at the approach to station access going forward um, and whether that can be um, extended out. One of the things that I have been talking to TransLink about is in relation to the new transport hub, for example. So the current um, bus station at Great Victoria Street, I think, has 18 um, parking bays on it. The new one has, I'm just, as she checks her notes, I think 26. So we're going up to 26. Um, and, and that will obviously present opportunities for further development and potentially for private operators. So it's something to look at going forward. In relation to, you, you specifically asked about the shared services regulations. Um, we can, under the 2011 Act, bring in regulations to actually require this to be done. Whether it makes any difference or not, because there will still be the fundamental need to look at the operating and the health and safety issues. Um, but we could, so it, it is something that we could do. Um, it was ready to go um, during the last mandate before the assembly um, stopped in what 2017. Um, and during this mandate, obviously, the focus, the legislative focus, has been around Brexit and trying to, to make sure that our legislative um, program in relation to that was robust. So it, it wasn't taken through. Um, we could look at it in the future. Um, I suppose I would be more inclined to think about how we can do this in a in a more collaborative way with TransLink and the operators being able to collaborate um, and, and having a, a fairly good relationship and um, having discussed this with TransLink, I think that's probably where I would prefer to go in the short term. Okay, um, thank you very much, Jackie. Um as I said, a lot of my questions are already um, asked, um, and I do think this is a very important issue, and it's not to overlook the import of it, but I'm also aware of time, and the chair, uh, you know, we need to, they're being thrown out of the room in part of the buildings. So thank you for your answers, but this is an important issue. Agreed. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Mr. Beggs. Uh, hello, I want to go back to uh, Journey Planner again. And, uh, and the language being used is that uh, people haven't been included because they haven't provided the increased level of information and data. Mm -hmm. uh, I thought in terms of uh, practically uh, uh, being listed in Journey Planner, and bearing in mind this is a public service paid for by the public, millions of pounds, literally almost a million pounds has been spent in developing this website plus all the, the uh, additional money prior to that. Um, what information has been missed other than the time of the bus service and where it's arriving? Can you tell me what additional information is needed? Are barriers being put up, I have to say? No, I don't. I don't. I genuinely don't think the barriers are being put up. And I think my earlier comments in relation to how TransLink are, are facilitating the operator um, who was 
previously included and, and they're going to get them back on board. And so at the moment, my understanding is that they're just waiting for that operator to finalize their post-COVID um, scheduling. And when that's done, that they will be back on board. In relation to airporter, it is slightly different because it's not um, a, a passenger service. So, so you have to pre-book airporter. You can't just you know, rock up at a stop and, and know that the bus is going to stop for you, which is really what Journey Planner is about. Um, so, so that needs to be taken through slightly differently, but TransLink are trying to facilitate that. That is the only two requests that I'm aware of for access to Journey Planner. Um, but going yep. forward, I would like to think about, you know, it goes back to what is the best thing to do for our passengers and um, whether Journey Planner is the right way to do it. Um, but at the moment, we are with a system that TransLink runs um, as an operator, as, as you know, so, so they're operating the system, but they're also a public transport operator. You've said that the original uh, pilot uh, applicant was removed because there's an increased level uh, of information was required for Journey Partner. Can you come back to the committee and tell us what the additional increased information was? Because I failed to understand that one. So, I, but my understanding is that that was in relation to um, a systems um, update. So, so the system was updated and the information that was currently held was insufficient. At the beginning, nobody realized um, that it had been dropped off. Um, and once that happened, then there was the request for the increased, uh, increased information to try and get them back on board. Can I advise, I, I'm disappointed because I got the, uh, an answer to a recent question to the minister, and there's no reference to a failure in a system update or, or failure with the journey planner system. It was almost implying that there's a lack of information from the applicant. So I think it's very important to the minister. Well, what I'll do, Mr. Beggs, is, is come back and clarify that because um, you know it, it's a it's a difficult one, um, and it's uh, you know it's it's an IT system, and my IT knowledge is not um, is is not that up to date. Um, but I will come back and clarify that for you. Okay. Then, in terms of others uh, are saying access to to um, public. Uh, bus stations again, a service for the public, paid for by the public. Uh, um, certainly, there is a perception that private coach operators must drop their 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 um, carrying public off in the street, even at quiet times when there is no health and safety risks. So, how are you going to ensure that that perception does not continue? So, I will continue to work with TransLink on that, and um, if. If we feel that there is that perception, even then, maybe the shared regulations um, is shared facilities regulations is the way to go, um, and I will look at that going forward, um, and and that's one of the things that I will discuss with operators. Uh, again, on the thirty-minute rule, then, um, concern was given to us about how uh, purchasing a, a, a significant coach was a long-term investment, and yet the permit is on, is only for three years. And they are coming back, and again, their understanding is they are applying uh, uh, and could lose their their uh, permit after that three years. Particularly if uh, TransLink have introduced new services in the meantime, who who, uh, who have, in uh, some instances, when applications have come in before those determinations are made, TransLink introduces new services almost to to create a difficulty 
for those services? How are we going to ensure that there is innovation going forward and that that entrepreneurial spirit that the private sector does bring uh, to respond to market needs, to the customers' needs, is continued and, and that they are not pushed out when uh, TransLink perhaps sees competition and moves in? Yeah, and, and again, this, this goes back to one of the earlier questions, and, and I do feel that the incumbent on a, on a, the, the incumbent operator um, does have an advantage whenever it comes to renewal. The three-year renewal period is set in legislation, so there, there's very little really we can do about that in the short term going forward, short of taking through an amendment to, to the legislature, to the primary legislation. Um, but it's whenever a renewal application comes in, it doesn't go to a determination panel, so the information needs to be considered, it still goes out to the consultees, again that's required by the legislation, and the decision is made by the head of branch. Um, in most cases, I, you know, and I'm trying to think of an example that wouldn't be covered, um, but in most cases I would have thought that if the service provision was sufficient, if the passenger numbers were sufficient for the operator to want a renewal, then I can see very few issues around that renewal being allowed, unless there was other issues that had come to light. I cannot see, and I've already talked about the PSA with um, TransLink, um, we will be looking to make sure that there is no... And, you, you have quoted what may or may not happen with TransLink introducing new services. Un unless I have specifics around that, I, you know, I really couldn't even think about starting to comment on it. Um, but, but we would have provision um, in order to make sure that TransLink only operates services within the PSA and that that PSA routes are only extended um, with the approval of the department. In terms of your process of renewal, you've introduced a new process for initial application. Uh, would you not consider introducing a new processes for, for renewal, given that individuals have been through that uh, detailed process initially? They've obviously proven and developed the service. Uh, and why are we making such a bureaucratic service for what you're saying should be virtually automatic, except if they're, they're not uh, perhaps providing the level of service that, that one would expect? So why do you not have a different service for renewal? So um, at the moment, there are things that a renewal application still requires, and that includes the, the consultation phase. So if we get a renewal application, we must go out to consultees on it, and it's the same list of consultees as for new applications. That's set in legislation. There is nothing that we can do about it, short of changing the, the, the legislation. Um, and I think there are good reasons why we should continue to go out to consultation on that. So, for example, one of our consultations would be with PSNI. So if they have issue, you know, identified any issues with that service, I think it's really fair that, that the application and the renewal process is alerted to that. Um, it is a more streamlined system, um, and we will endeavour to make sure within the guidelines. So, so Stuart and I have been having a conversation about the, what the guidelines might look like going forward. And we're actually thinking about changing it into so putting in three sections. So one will be a renewal section, one will be a you know, first application system and a, a separate section then to look at where people request a, a slight amendment to their permit. So, so it's not a new application, but maybe it's 
you know, a slight change of time or, you know, whatever, um, and that we will have that very clearly set out to make sure that um, it's open and transparent to everybody. I hope that will be a bureaucratic way. Thank you. Thank you. And, and finally, Mrs Kelly. Sorry, we can't hear you, Dolores. She's chairing. I've missed the platitudes. I want to wish you well in your new post and uh, I've enjoyed working with you in your current role as chair of infrastructure committee. So I look forward to seeing my constituency sooner rather than later, I hope. Um, but the, the report that before us um, and, and the answers by the department has actually been very helpful. And I'm not um, repeat the questions others have raised, but Jackie, you did say in your in your uh, preamble that the gaps in the network, you know, is where you want the private sector to fill. But yet, you know, and I have to agree with other members, you know, particularly Roy when he's and, and Martina said that that's not how uh, the operators express themselves as being valued, you know, and, and I have to say we value the public sector uh, provision of transport uh, of transport, but in, in the up forthcoming PSA. Um, review. I mean, how? Uh, what will the terms of reference be for that? You know, what will be the lessons learned over the last X number of years, and how will you consult, if you will consult, uh, with the private sector as well as service users in, in the delivery of that? And how do you then um, set uh, the standards that we have here against other jurisdictions in terms of the provision of public sector? transport networks okay so so the, the PSA as I've already said is is up for renewal this week year and the team is working very hard with Translink to look at that that is um, covered in regulation 1370 um, and we will need to make sure that um, that, that, that regulation 30 1370 is applied um, the, the PSA does give will give Translink exclusive rights to deliver services that are set out in the PSA as per the timetable. They don't have exclusive rights to the routes themselves. We are in a different situation here than we are in other jurisdictions across these islands. You know, it, it is different um, here, you know, for example, the NTA in Ireland um, and the, the service provision in GB. Um, we will look to, um, to see what we can learn by best practice in relation to that. But it is it is different, um, and they would not have PSAs the same way that we would with the operators. And um, so it is a case of balance in those. One of the things that I would say is that even if you look at um, information which the department has very recently published, we are looking towards um, making sure that the passenger needs are fully met, and that includes in relation to the likes of demand responsive services. Um, so that, that's something I think going forward with our transport plans as well that we will be looking to, to, to do and to encourage. And I think we will continue to encourage our operators, our private operators, to, to help us to deliver, um, to, to, to make sure that all passengers and all citizens across Northern Ireland have access to public transport, because that's the way to go. And, and eventually this goes back to climate change and our responsibilities in relation to that and to reduce um, use of cars. Will there be a cross-border analysis in relation to that? Sorry, and, and, I, I didn't hear. cost-benefit analysis, you know, which will look comparable across jurisdictions and also in terms of the management costs 
and whether or not those are value for money. That, that would be a fairly wide piece of review. Now, the, the, the PSA will look at value for money and efficiency savings. Um, and as part of that, we will be benchmarking TransLink against other comparable, as comparable as we can find operators. So that piece of work will be done. Sure, I think this one will probably be coming back to as a committee at some further point. <laughs> okay. Um can I just thank you um, both for your, your time this morning? Um, we did overrun our time quite considerably, um, and I think we're quite confident that the committee will be returning to this again. So thank you, um, Jackie and Stuart. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, members, can I very quickly draw your attention then to the forward work program, um, page one hundred and thirty-five, and just draw your attention to the fact. Reflecting on our conversation earlier, that there will be two briefings from DVA at next week's meeting, obviously in relation to the um, the PAC report as well. Um, can I also remind members that tomorrow morning there is an informal meeting um, via Starleaf at 10 a.m. and I know a number of members have responded to that, so your attendance at that would be very welcome. Members content to note the four work program. Okay, um, Moving then to any other business, Mr. Muir, you had indicated that you had something. Okay, so Mr. Muir, Miss Anderson, you're okay. So sorry, just taking her, her hand down. Mr. Muir, uh, Mr. Boylan, and the deputy chair. Uh, thank you very much, Chair. Um, you'll probably be aware that uh, recent coverage and obviously reports from operators and from taxi drivers in terms of the issues that they're now uh, experiencing. Um, this good element of this is uh, a hangover from the pandemic, but and also uh, it's related to ongoing issues in terms of the industry. And I was going to recommend that we, as um, a committee, write to the minister to ask her uh, what plans she has to, to undertake a review of how the regulation of the industry is undertaken to ensure that we're able to get as many people back uh, and being able to help the local communities as they have been doing throughout the pandemic and before, and also to write to the economy minister in terms of what action uh, she's taken or potentially he from next week in terms of um, supporting the industry as one of a key part of our economy, because there is a key issue here in terms of skill shortage, um, not just within the taxi industry, but also within, for example, logistics, within hospitality. And we do need to respond to this because this issue is going to become acute and, it's going to start and affect our recovery from COVID-19. So that's just two suggestions from myself. Okay, members content? Okay, thank you, Mr. Boyle. Yeah, Chair, thanks, Chair. Uh, Chair, just an issue, obviously, it's arising from Brexit, but it's in relation to the hauliers. Um, hauliers are having problems with qualifications as transport managers. Basically, there's a period of time where they could convert their northern qualifications to the south, and now there's a short window of opportunity to do that, and now they've found that they need an address or a residency in the south for to do that. So I'm just uh, asking the committee to write to the minister to see can she intervene to, because the hauliers are some of them are up in arms and they're finding difficulties dealing with that. So uh, I'd send on my email just to clarify the point, but I'm looking to support just to write to the minister to see what she can do working with the community part in the south to address that issue. Okay, members content. Okay, thank you, Ms. <coughs> thank you. I think Andrew was going to share some issues in relation to the taxi industry, uh, but it sort of was more focused on potentially getting the chief executive of the DVA here and potentially the permanent secretary. 
regarding the DVA enforcement section, of which there appears to be a number of real problems out there at the moment and sort of breaches of their own potential code of conduct. So I was looking maybe to go further than just write, maybe invite along uh, someone to talk to us about the taxi interest in general and that, 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 in, that specifically. Okay, um, DVA are here next week to talk next about MOTs and driving tests. Yeah. So it might be an opportunity maybe to introduce that, but I don't think it would do any harm maybe to write in advance as yeah. well and maybe look at a specific briefing on it on enforcement because obviously it's, it's broader. <coughs> Than yeah, there's been a, a number of incidents in court cases over the last 12 months in relation to things which appear to be not correct. Well, we'll have to wait Okay, the members content. Yeah, okay. just further to that, then, Chair, can I, I wasn't in the start of the meeting, but can I as Vice Chair pay tribute to yourself as, as Chair and steering us through some of the problems over the last year and keeping us all in line here as committee members. You've done a fairly sterling job, in my opinion, anyway, so thank you. Okay, thank you, and can I just thank all members, really, for their participation, really, over the last year. It hasn't been easy at times um, with COVID and so on, but, I mean, you've all been tremendous in attendance. There haven't really been any issues at all in relation to decorum, which makes chairing a meeting um, very very helpful, um, but also the participation that you've had. You're all incredibly interested and, and over the brief, um, which again makes it um, very easy then then to chair. So I, I like I'd like to thank you for that. Um, obviously, we, we'd like to have been able to have got out on a number of visits. We'd have probably been had a tour of Northern Ireland on at this stage in in normal times, but hopefully. As restrictions um, ease, that um, that will be um, that will ease up, and there'll be opportunity to do that. Um, I'd also like to, to thank um, Vincent, um, Ali, and and Kathy, and Johnny, and, and Bill for their support over the last year too, um, which has made my job easier. So, thank you very much, and um, hopefully you'll, sure. you'll, you'll make the new chair very welcome. <laughs> Miss sure, Miss as well, I, I never got a chance to come in at the start, but just again to echo the comments of everybody else. I mean, I certainly find you very fair and, and it worked really, really well with all of us um, over the last year, particularly as a, a, a newish MLA. Um, you know, it certainly helped me in my experience um, on committee. So just to thank you for, for all your work and wish you well in your new votes. And hopefully your um, the incoming chair will pick up where you've left off and, and, and continue that trail. So um, thanks very much for everything. Okay, thank you, Mr. Buchanan. Yes, I think it would be probably appropriate if I said something as well. I wasn't going to say anything, but everybody's forced me into it now. Oh, so, <laughs> so, <laughs> no, to, just to congratulate you and thank you for your, your uh, efforts and work with this past year. I congratulate you on your uh, new post, and I wish you my personal uh, thanks. Okay. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, members, for for um, for that. And if you're content, we'll adjourn the meeting. Thank you. Okay. <coughs> Committee room 29. This is the Northern Ireland Assembly.